experience alternately titled i've never seen that shit before and joining me to talk about wrestling and my woes as a homeowner hawaiian brian the podcasting lion the king of the arcadian vanguard podcast network mr co-host to you he's the new president of the thicky the dragon steamboat fan club the great brian last everybody Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. And I believe it was Thicky the Wagon Steamboat. Let's get Thicky this right. Thicky the Wagon Steamboat. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I was incorrect there. There was also Yam Yam Bigelow. That was right. Rob Van Yam. Rob Van Yam. The Clam Slam was what they named <laughs> her finish on, on the Twitter machine. Uh, she's very, very popular these days, but I'll, we're, I'm glad we're here. I'm glad I'm here. I don't know about you. Are you glad I'm here? Of course I am. Well, you'll pretty soon, if you get what we got, you won't get what we got. Because you're up there in the Northeast where they're, they don't get the tornadoes. You get hurricanes every once in a while. But hell, you get three weeks notice on those things. You could take a fucking Hawaiian vacation while it's coming. We almost got blown away. The big blow job came through Louisville again last night. You know, I should start this. By saying that we are we are at an odd schedule today. If anything drastic happens in the world of professional wrestling between Thursday afternoon and and Saturday morning, normally we would be able to cover it, or at least Friday afternoon. But in this case, we're we're recording this program slightly ahead of our normal schedule. I won't reveal the inner machinations of the organization here, but there's one person in the organization. That had that never asked for a never asked me for a favor, never always takes whatever schedule changes are thrown at him in stride. You know, he's, he's a key man in the organization, can't do the show without him. I won't mention any names, but he said to me a few days ago, he said, Do you think we could record on Thursday afternoon because of a very important family commitment? And I, oh, absolutely, right? The one time I said. I have a few things scheduled, but it should be an easy week. Those were the last fatal words. So uh, normally, you know, I keep to a very rigid schedule, Brian, here at the castle. A lot of people think I'm just sitting here at the castle, you know, living off the fat of the land or living the high life or whatever the the uh, phrase is I'm going for. And But I have a very rigid schedule. You know this. I always picture you throwing, I, throwing darts at voodoo dolls. Well, that that's at, at 5.15 to 5.30. See, a very rigid schedule. That, that a very example. rigid schedule, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, hey, the P6 principle, poor pre-planning leads to piss-poor performance. So I, I keep a schedule, not only the recording schedules, important appointments, of uh, uh, people coming to service me in some fashion, uh, whether heating, electric, you know, the tradesman I'm talking about, the type of service you get. 
But anyway, um, yeah, well, I didn't want you to lead us down the garden path there. But I keep a rigid schedule. I write everything down, and also then I write down what I foolishly hope to accomplish on each particular day. And I go about a week or 10 days out, and I modify it every day, of course, as I cross things off today. Of course, I never get to the phone calls. I talk to nobody on the telephone except for you and Hotchkiss Featherbottom anymore. I don't have time. But basically, under normal circumstances these days, I'm doing one of three things. I'm either recording one of these podcasts, I'm watching wrestling to review on these podcasts, or I'm signing action figures. That is what I'm doing with my day, except for the normal maintenance of a living organism like sleeping and eating, and every once in a while a bath, just because you got to do it once in a while, even though I don't sweat anymore. Otherwise, I'm pretty, you know, I've, I don't have a lot of free time, but this week, knowing that we never record on Wednesday and Thursday. I scheduled some of these servicing. Now, on Tuesday, I got together with Hotchkiss, and we took a caravan of truckload of the first couple of hundred of action figures that are boxed up and ready to go and actually have gone out as we speak now. They are on the way. And I got with him and the, the feather bottoms and got that taken care of, and I got back here and I signed another hundred figures, got them in boxes, and on Wednesday, the electrician is coming. And I figure this is going to be a simple thing. Because on Wednesday, after I get the electrician started, I can finish putting the, you know, the finishing touches on these boxes of figures, and then I can watch the Monday wrestling and the Tuesday wrestling and the Tuesday documentary about the wrestling and the Tuesday young rock about the wrestling and whatever the case, right? And then I'll be all fired up and ready to go for Thursday because... The duct cleaners are coming on Thursday also. Remember, I scheduled this because we never do anything on Thursday, except for at the behest of this unnamed individual in the organization. Who celebrates Passover. Well, you didn't even tell me that's what it was. Ah. And opening day. Okay, that's what it was. <laughs> well, no, it, it just happens to be the same day. Opening day and Passover happen to be the same day, and it's naturally a holiday. Well, you sold me the opening day like a family commitment type of thing where it's going to be a group effort to open this day or whatever goes on. What is that when they throw out the first ball bat or they, <laughs> no, they what don't. do they do? They get one of the ball boys and sacrifice him to the gods of fucking uh, Schwarzenegger, Steinbrenner, or what is the? No, no, you're thinking of Mark Shot. No, they don't do any of that stuff anymore. Opening day is just the first home for the Mets right now. It'll be the first home game of the 2022 season, but every game there's a first pitch. Usually it's someone who's given the team some money or just someone they're trying to get some attention for. But there's always a first pitch yeah. every game. You know what? That's if I've known some people in my life that if if they were baseball players, there they would have been possible for them to strike out on the very first pitch because they did in every other aspect of their life. But anyway, let's get off the baseball and back to my problems. Because I said the phrase, I've never seen that before. You as a brand new homeowner up there, that big giant manor that you have there, you do not want to hear the words, I've never seen that before, coming from any of the people that come over to do work for you, do you? That's the last thing you ever want to hear from anybody <laughs> who's doing any work for you, is I've never seen that before. All right, so I had my Wednesday planned out. 
I'm going to get the electric, and they're coming early, and it's it's Tom Drexler. I've mentioned the fine folks at Tom Drexler several times on the program. They do the heating, they do the air, they do the electrical work, they do the plumbing. It just They got you one way or the other for anything you need in your house, right? Except, of course, I do go outside the parameters sometimes. So they're going to come early, but they have a company-wide meeting, and it delays them a little while. That's They call, call to let me know, okay. So I'm fiddling with finishing my figures, and then they show up, and here's what they're going to do. And I know my, my day is not going to be disrupted by this in any fashion because they're going to be at other parts of the castle. They're putting me a sub-panel in the back of one of the garage closets because the room behind it, our sunroom and the back porch there, we're going to remodel this year, and we need more plugs out there. They're going to put me a new outlet in the utility room at the other end of the house so that I don't have too many things plugged into one outlet now that I got those badass water heaters. And they're going to replace, fix, repair, whatever the case, my exhaust fans in both my attics. Now, I neither need to be in the garage, in the utility room downstairs, or in either attic of the house in order to function on Wednesday, so I will be completely unmolested, right? That's that's not a rhetorical question. It sounded like a rhetorical question. (laughs) Well, no, actually, I was just taking a breath. So. I finish up the figures. They get started. They're out in the garage. I said, I'm going to finish up what I'm doing here, and I'm going to go start watching the wrestling programs on the TV in the bedroom so I don't have to hear the drill at the blah, blah, blah. Just then, the cable goes off in the uh, in the TV room. And I'm like, what? It, it, it's Spectrum, right? So I'm thinking, okay, it, it, the picture froze, and then it gets the, we cannot, this channel be available momentarily. I said, well, that's a key for me to go upstairs. I'll not only watch the wrestling programs, but I'll see if the cable's out up there, too, if it's a system-wide issue or just this box or whatever, right? So I go up to, to the bedroom. Well, to change the attic fans and repair them, they have to turn the power off to the attic, right? To both of them. Well, it just so happens that the attic over the bedroom, the bedroom plug that the TV and the cable box and everything is plugged is on the same circuit. All the lights in in the bedroom work, but just not everything the TV's plugged into. So I can't turn it on. If I go and flip the breaker, well, then I'm going to electrocute and fry somebody in my attic. And then it would be the same thing as when we talked about what to do with somebody stuck in your chimney, I'll have to wait till they liquefy and then just kind of blot them up. Why would right, you? I can't. I'm not even going to go through this again. Okay. I accept okay. that you would just dispose of the body. Yes. Well, if you know, it's, it's their fault if they're up, especially if it's my fault. If I fry the guy, I don't want to admit that. Anyway. So, okay, I can't watch that TV. Well, I'll go up in the office and I'll check and see what's going on up there. Well, I come up here and come to find out that to turn off the circuit with the attic fan and the light in there, the office is turned off. So now I don't know whether I've got any cable and I don't know whether I've, I've got. So I've, I finally figure out 
that if I wait until they just turn everything back on, obviously something can be done, right? So this takes a while. Well, then they turn everything back on in the one end of the house with the bedroom, right? Because they finished that attic. And I turn the cable box back on and it's dead. I've got raw DV. I've got all the programs on that DVR plus, you know, what the fuck now, right? So I'm thinking he's going to kill you. He's going to kill me. I can't watch any of these programs. What the fuck is this box fried? Can't get a, a, a picture on any channel. Can't get to DVR. There's power to the box. But nothing else is working. So I come back down in the TV room. Still can't get a picture down there. Actually, the DVR on that one, because it's a different kind of cable box, it works, but none of the programs are on that. And now I'm like, guys, what do you, th what the fuck? I've got, can you turn everything on? Cause I got to call the cable company. I want to make sure everything's turned off. They finally flipped the other switch and the cable came back on. This is not the, pa the electrical power. This is the cable picture. They're flipping my circuit breakers on and off. The power to the box wasn't good, but the picture was. I said, how can that be possible? And they started rooting around. Guess who's at the root of the issue? Spectrum. Oh, I was going to say Bertie Sanders. No. Spectrum, some knucklehead that's been here, has put a signal booster because it goes so many different ways to, you know, the cable and, and uh, to many different ends of the house. On the splitter, and wired it in some kind of way. It's not plugged in. It's wired in because it's right next to the circuit breaker box or whatever. When they're flipping the circuit breaker off, it's, it's killing the, the signal splitter booster, which is then not allowing any signal to go to the cable box, even though it has power. So we found that out. Does that sound like a thing you've ever heard of? I've not encountered that, no. So then they go on their merry way and, they, and everything's working. And I said, now I can finally sit down and watch these programs for the great Brian Last against my will. I think I need a cheeseburger for this because now against it's against my will. Well, you don't have to throw against yes. my will in there. <laughs> like I'm forcing you against my well, at least early. And I need a cheeseburger, right? I, so I, I make a quick cheeseburger and I tell Stace, I said, I'm going to run through all these programs. And by that time I sit down and I turn on raw. It's about seven o'clock. And just then, that's when they issue the first fucking severe thunderstorm warning and tornado watch. What the f Now I've forgotten that we're supposed to have severe weather, right? I'm trying to watch the first segment of Raw, and then I stop and go back to the local weather, which now has said we're under every kind of warning on Earth, and also this shit, and you're looking at the the radar and it's a solid red line from north to south coming straight there ain't nothing gonna miss us right and they busted in every local station as you know said fuck you to the network and they're showing this doom and gloom and so the schools by the way in jefferson county are closed today because so many places are without power so many schools at least the red lights on one of the 
busiest streets in town aren't working, so morning travel was chaos. Houses have been damaged. A pickup truck got blown over into a guy's front yard. Trees are down. And we're watching the weather as they're for, and here now the sirens start. You can hear the sirens. Harley Quinn's just, yeah, she doesn't like that shit. And Stacy's phone is getting weather alerts. And here's another thing. We're actually watching the most expensive, up-to-date, state-of-the-art color satellite weather radar that is available to science being broadcast in high definition on our TV screen, right? And in the emergency broadcast system, right, as they say, okay, we have a confirmed tornado in Louisville. Emergency broadcasting service switches in with a fucking full screen graphic that looks like it was ripped off of a video game in 1982 that says tornado warning and horrible audio that sounds like Neil Armstrong from the moon. Yes, you motherfuckers. We were going to see exactly where it was until you broke in. So then we're, we are literally, then they call, I swear to God to you, baseball-sized hail in Radcliffe. How far are you from Radcliffe? As the crow flies, maybe 30 miles, not even. And it's coming that, see, that's the way it's coming. It's coming from the west-east. And so, and it was actually measured at 2.8 inches in diameter on the news this morning. And that's why I told you earlier, I said I was expecting David Letterman to pop in and fucking forecast hail the size of canned hams. So then there's 75 mile an hour winds in Simpsonville. That's 15 miles, maybe not even to the east of us. And then meanwhile, as this storm, as you see it on the radar coming in, I'm again, I'm going to the uh, west side of the house. I look out the window, not a branch on a tree moving, but the wind or the sky is dark. It's just now getting dark and you can see it's even darker over there. And it really looked like something wicked this way comes. Then they're on the news showing that here's the shelf clouds. And so basically we ended up with, I don't know whether they confirmed the tornadoes. People said they spotted them, but the weather service has to bless it. But when finally, when the tor- they announced we have a tornado on the ground in Fern Creek, which let's say that's five miles or whatever. I'm a, I'm two minutes from, Again, taking Stace and Harley underneath the pool table down in the bar with a blanket over the top of us. And that's when the shit came through. And it, for five minutes, the you, the wind was insane. The rain was pouring. I looked out the window, had the spotlights on outside. And the rain was not only going sideways, it was raining up because of the wind. It was just, it was, yeah. And five, ten minutes, it blows by. And we missed the the tornado again by a few miles. And I don't think we got 75-mile-an-hour winds here, but it was ridiculous. But then at that point, then boom, and then it just drizzled for a while and with some thunder and blah, blah, blah. And it's so... The thing is, with the hurricanes, you know two weeks ahead of time or whatever it's coming... But it just beats the shit out of you forever. And and before it goes by with tornadoes, you have no idea two minutes away whether you're going to get fucking picked up in a tornado or not. 
but it's gone fairly quickly. So there. So anyway, can I ask you real quick though? Yeah. How many tornadoes? Well, I don't know if you know, would know that. Maybe you would. But how old were you the first time you experienced? The first time you remember experiencing a tornado? Uh, um, I, I don't know the first time because I mean. It, this is the area, and this is not even as bad as as Oklahoma and a place like that. For but you live with tornado warnings. They were even talking on the news last night that last year in the springtime it was such a beautiful spring, calm weather. The dogwood was in bloom for a month, and it, that was unusual. You always have tornado warnings. You always have severe weather this time of year. What was unusual and completely off the chart was the shit we had in December. That doesn't happen that time of year. But the big one was April 3rd, 1974. And we've talked about that on the program before. There were, it was an outbreak of a hundred and something tornadoes from Texas and Oklahoma all the way through Ohio and killed however many hundred people. And that I remember because I was, we, I, we didn't have a pool table then. So we were in the utility room uh, where I've just had the electricians working in the bar, uh, me and my mom with a, a transistor radio, which is what you had then battery operated radio to listen to the, you know, the weather. And we were there for quite a while. Cause that shit went on and on. That was fucking ridiculous. Uh, it wiped out Seb Brandenburg, Kentucky, Xenia, Ohio. So that's the one I really remember. We, I even used to do tornado tag matches in OVW if we came up on a uh, April 3rd air date for TV or whatever, because everybody in this city that was alive then remembers April 3rd is tornado day. So, but after all that went by, then I had to start watching these wrestling shows. <laughs> so wait, this ain't over yet, right? This is why today, I don't know what we got for a show today. We'll see. We'll let you people be the judge. So I start back on watching Raw at fucking 9.30 or whatever, when all this shit has settled down and blown past. And then you just pointed out to me right before we started recording today, I forgot NXT. And you did too, because you said I forgot NXT. I said, oh shit. But then today... Had the duct cleaners coming, right? Because I had the new furnace put in here not long ago. And they say, well, you ought to get your ducts clean. And yes, because in the bar, again, downstairs, and that's why we go down there in case of tornado weather. It's a, the it's half underground. The walls are a foot thick creek stone. I've got a giant fucking pool table with, you know, it's four tons. So I figure, okay, this is a place I need to be unless I can dig a hole real quick. But the bar air ducts for the air and the heating have had little to no air pressure for quite some time. And I've it's one of those things I've put off. I said, I'm going to get these cleaned out so they're just running efficiently, right? Along with the rest of that end of the house that that furnace services. And they can, they're very nice folks. They come in with the big vacuum thing and Boom, that one room and another room and another room and another room. They're just cooking along. We get down to the bar and he sticks and it's fascinating because what they do is they stick a long tube into the vent with these appendages 
rubber or whatever they are that spin at a high rate of speed that whips up all of the dirt and the muck inside your duct. See here, what other wrestling podcast is going to give you a lesson in duct cleaning? And they've got this big vacuum hose that's there at the entranceway to the, and they just whip it around and boom, and it just sucks it right out. You ought to see the muck and the crud and the dirt and the dust and the germs and the filth and the Dreck. disgusting thing, the dreck. And by the way, apparently that's a German word, possibly Yiddish. They said that. Yes. That's yes. you're the one. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> On the show. <laughs> yeah. Publicly. You're the you're the one. <laughs> so it's worked so well in every but the one room that I'm really having a problem with the airflow, he sticks it in. He starts in the bathroom down there and he sticks it in. And I'm I'm watching him because I'm fascinated. He's got his helper feeding him the line. And suddenly it's not it doesn't go like the other ones did because within about the first 10 or 15 seconds, he, oh, whoa, stop, stop. I'm like, whoa, shit. He pulls that thing out of there. It's it's the heating and air duct, right? <laughs> it's wet and muddy. The tube is wet and mud, just dripping with water. It has mud all over. I'm like, what the fuck? He said, I've never seen that before. God damn it. So we go around into the actual bar itself. And bear in mind, we don't have any leaks. There's no water in this in this room uh there's nothing amiss to the naked eye everything's beautiful so he sticks the hose in again to the to the next vent and starts to dry it back oh stop stop it's even wetter then the thing's just dripping and there's shit all over he said i can't suck up water with this vac i said don't try and that's the oldest part of the house these ducks are 70 years old and back in those days, and I understand that may be a thing that they did back in those days, but it's frowned upon in today's environment. From the furnace, they have run the ducts, because did I mention this room is half underground, and it sits on a concrete slab. They've run the ducts underneath and laid them into or laid the concrete around them, and then they come up at the baseboards and are supposed to blow all that air. And something underneath the floor, invisible to the naked eye, has collapsed or infiltrated into these ducts. So now i got to call a plumber for my ducts to run one of those cameras in there like they do in the sewage system and see if they can see wherein lies the catastrophe. And it, it, it may be one of these things that you just need to turn your blind eye to and live with especially since the amount of time i've apparently got left to live at my age right gotta get the duck out of there get the dog oh, hold on wait a minute <laughs> thank you let's, very let's, much let's, oh thank hold you. on let's oh. let's give it all to you thank you uh, uh, thank you thank you get the duck out of there so <laughs> they left and I finished some programming and now here we are to talk about some wrestling today. But first, before we do that, I alluded to it earlier that the first couple of hundred official Jim Cordette action figures have made it to the mail stream. I, the commentator play sets. I warmed up with those because I hadn't boxed those before. So I want to see what was going on there. Um, and now that we have gotten everything separated and organized and the assembly line is underway 
As I've mentioned, if you order a non-figure related item or have, that stuff is up to date and is on the way as well as the first couple of hundred figures. There's another hundred and something waiting on the feather bottoms. Now, understand also it is this weekend is a holiday weekend. In the midst of all these trials and tribulations, I have given the feather bottoms because they do have an extended family. Their, their family tree actually doesn't branch. It just droops over. Uh, but they, so they've got the weekend off, but another couple of hundred going out at the first of the week and, uh, we're, we've got a good pace and they're, they're coming. So if, if you've got a, a dog in this hunt, uh, take heart because it won't be as long as it's been in the past with me by myself. However, I should say happy Easter to the people. Also the feather bottoms reminded me that it's a holiday. Well, what are you doing for Easter? First of all, I want to say happy Passover to all my Jewish brothers and sisters. Oh. Well, and there's that, that's on Friday, right? Well, it begins Friday. It's more than one night. And of course we celebrate. How long do you get? It's seven nights. Well, God damn it. How come all the, I get, are they Christian holidays or however, however do you term them? They're one day. You guys get weeks at a T, 12 days for Christmas, right? Or something like that. It's just every goddamn day of the year is a holiday to you. We have Hanukkah in December. Yes. Well, but I'm saying you have multiple. Da- How do we go about doing this? Where do we lobby? Oh, I, I can introduce you to a rabbi. Does our have the wrong union? If you're looking to convert, I could introduce you to someone. I've, what would I convert? Convert? <laughs> what would I convert from? It would be quite unorthodox, but I think welcoming you into the Jewish fold would be quite a moment for <laughs> the Hebrew nation. Well, Eddie, you were mentioning it's Passover, yes. so you're going to do something for Passover. What are you doing for Passover? We have a Passover Seder. Well, it's a family you, dinner. It's a family dinner and, with do Jewish you traditions. Back around and pick Seder up after you've passed over. It's a family dinner. Oh. Uh, and but, yes, we will have a nice brisket and some matzo ball soup, and we tell the story of Passover to the kids, and then they go find the matzah to get some money. That's always the highlight for the kids. It was always the highlight for me. Wait a minute, what's a matzah? I thought a matzah was a, a, a ball in soup. No, that's a matzah ball. Matzah itself is a flat, unleavened... Do you eat it? Do you, you eat it, but use also, it for goddamn household chores like a sponge? What do you do with this stuff? You eat it. I like to d- dip it in tomato sauce. I don't know why other people don't do that, but a lot of people like to put butter on it. A lot of people do different things. But also, for Passover, you break it usually into a maybe half. And you hide it for each kid. They have to go around the house looking for the matzah that's hidden in the house, and then they get money for finding it. So it's like eggs with the with Easter. But what, do you do anything for Easter at all? Because it's isn't Easter the origination of Easter when a bunny came back from the dead to bring chocolate eggs to the children? I believe so. Yes. So do you do you are you allowed to eat the chocolate eggs or what goes on there? Can you give the kids? Of uh, the the painted colored eggs, or are they hard boiled, or do you throw rotten eggs at them? What do you do with the eggs, and and how do the eggs and whether chocolate or hen laid come into play in this in this observance? There are no hen laid eggs that come into play. Uh, we're gonna watch Donnie Darko, so we can keep in the mood of uh, bunny rabbits. No, uh, Suzanne handles all the non-Jewish stuff that happens in the house, and I handle <laughs> all the Jewish stuff, and it works out a lot better that way. So I don't know exactly what she's going to do other than 
There's some people coming over. There's baskets. There's all sorts of crap. People coming over. I don't yeah. know. There'll be a dancing bear. Yeah. We're not sure what's. Here's right, what I well. say. Here's what I say. Have fun going to look for eggs and Swami's dog shit. That's what I think. I'll be no! over here. I'll be in the house. For heaven's sake. Does Swami shit that much that you could hide an egg in it? No, he, it's, he's a little dog. It's a little well, cute little shits. That's why I don't mind should, him shitting on the lawn. You should take the dog to the vet if it's shitting like that. For heaven's sake, you could hide a full, full grown hen that. laid egg in it's not a hen laid egg that you use for easterns chocolate filled eggs apparently did you see there was just some kind of controversy have you never colored eggs when I, when I was a kid eight lola used to love to color eggs with me we would dip the hard-boiled eggs in the food coloring and make them blue and pink I was, yeah, red I was, I was too busy finding the matzo and collecting the money <sighs> Well, if you lose a tooth on Easter, does the rabbit give you money under your pillow, or how does that... Oh, can you imagine I guess that? that's a whole nother... That's a good movie. What if the rabbit and the tooth fairy converge at the house at the same time and get into a brawl? Yeah, well, yeah, there's territory infringement going on there somehow, I would think. All right, have we got a program to do here? Um, <laughs> I don't know, because I, no, I have no flow here today. Um... I must mention, oh, you know, as a matter of fact, I do have a, an email from one of the members of the Cult of Cornette that brings up an interesting, we may have caused a, a mis, uh, misunderstanding. I don't want to say misapprehension, a, a misunderstanding. Please don't let us be misunderstood, folks. You know, one of our fine sponsors here is the folks at Magic Spoon. And they are del- and folks, by the way, if you haven't had any of the magic spoon, you got to have some of the magic spoon. Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs in each serving, 140 calories a serving. You got it memorized by now, right? All the great flavors. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, cookies and cream, maple waffle, blueberry, cinnamon, the new reformulated honey nut. Tastes better than ever. Boy, I tell you, it's always a joy when you put some nut in your honey. And, you know, a lot of people <laughs> have uh, have been purchasing the custom bundles where if you go to magicspoon.com slash gym, use the promo code gym, you can save $5 off. You get the bundle, you can pick your own flavors, and it's amazing. They give you your money back if you don't like it. But one of the Cult of Cornet members has availed themselves of this service, and unfortunately, they may have misunderstood something we said. I don't. Do I ever take liberties, Brian, with the, with the copy on the advertising? Have I ever misrepresented anything or made any bogus claims on any of the fine products and services and people that that sponsor us? Certainly not. I don't think it's fair to say you take liberties with the copy. I think it's fair to say you ignore the copy completely and just go in a completely different direction than even I anticipated. And then you leave it for uh, us to clean up. Well, it's one or the other of those things. But in this case, uh, a gentleman who is a member of the cult, I won't give his name. And the reason for this will be self-evident within the next 30 to 45 seconds. But he ordered a custom bundle and loved it, enjoyed it. And not only wrote to us, but also wrote to the founder of Magic Spoon uh, herself, as well as uh, other people in the organization. And uh, here, the, the gist of the email is, Hi, my wife and I just got all the cereal and bars today and love it. Truly a remarkable product so far. Big thanks to Jim Cornette, whose podcast alerted me to Magic Spoon. 
Just one concern, however. We understood there would be one or two of the special spoons contained in our order, but we didn't get any at all. Can you please address this issue? Thank you, signed so-and-so and such and such. There were no... There, you, you they didn't, they didn't receive a magic spoon? Is that the issue? They, didn't, they understood <laughs> that there would be one or two of the special spoons contained in the order of the cereal. Have we ever... I I think it's it's obvious we've never said you have to furnish your own spoon. I would thought that would kind of be one of those things that how do they call it? Go without saying that if you're buying cereal, one should furnish their own home home-based spoon. But have have we ever given anyone the impression that you're also with you when you purchase the magic spoon cereal, you also get magic spoons? Well, hold on, I'm looking here. Or is this like the magic beans that you can give your life savings to that will grow the magic beanstalk? I'm looking on a website that has an article, don't be tricked by these April Fool's Day pranks. And one of them appears to be, (laughs) one of them appears to be magic spoon. (laughs) Move over sporks. We never liked you anyway. Introducing the strewn. The spoon-straw combo you never thought you needed. You scoop your cereal. All that remains is the sweet, milky goodness at the... It's like you wrote this. The sweet, milky goodness at the bottom. Wait a minute. Sweet, milky goodness? That sounds vaguely erotic. You drink your milk remnants. You drink it up. That's a Your milk this, remnants? That's according to this article here on Cheddar News. By Michelle Castillo. But no, who, whoever, whoever doesn't just slurp the milk out of the side of the bowl? Who's not going to? Apparently, do that? whoever thought they were going to get this April Fool's Day. Sh- what was it again? The magic spoons, or the spoon, the spoon, or the spoon. <laughs> but but this email is from April eleventh. Does that count? I don't know. By the way, I'm looking at this image. It does look pretty cool. The bullshit strewn that they made up for April Fool's Day. <laughs> A straw and a oh, I well I, the back of the the back of the spoon is the straw. See, I thought actually I thought there was a surreptitious, if not even nefarious, uh, plot behind a combination straw and spoon. But this isn't the eighties anymore, so it probably wouldn't be as big a hit as it was at once upon a time. That one did. That one landed like a turd in a punch bowl. Wait, hold. You have a sound hold on fight? one second. I think. I think yes. Or no. Wait a minute. What? Oh, here it is. Yeah, that's more appropriate. Yeah, that's more appropriate. Uh, magicspoon.com slash Jim. Use the code Jim to save $5 off at checkout if you want those custom bundles. But bring your own spoon. B-Y-O-S. Bring your own spoon, folks. All righty. Before we get into the uh, television wrestling from the week, um, there was a big happening, a big personnel change, not on the talent roster of on-camera talent, but AEW has landed a new producer, and it is Pat Buck, the man who just produced the two main events at WrestleMania and uh, and pulled the... uh, 
pull the old, I need more time with my family. Well, I'm not saying he pulled that. He, he's going to get more time with his family. They're not going to be running him around the world. But Pat Buck now has defected and gone to the, uh, to the other side. <sighs> Again, this is the kind of people that Tony should have been going after to, to set his promotion up before he went after any but the key talent. The key guys that, you know, the Jericho for the name and the, you know, the Bucks and Twinkle Toes for their rabid following and whoever. He should have set up an infrastructure first uh, because he was obviously going to have to deal with a lot of green talent. I had no idea of the level of greenness that that he would be dealing with, but veteran producers trainers, people who have uh, years of knowledge and experience in putting together a show of this magnitude on national cable television is what he really should have gone after first. At least he's getting them now. But again, this goes to show there's two camps of these guys. And Brian, I was talking to you before we went on the air. Um, there's the group of of talent and probably you know office people in in all companies, not just AEW, but everywhere, that are all the you know the indie rific entertainment guys. Let's you know do everything we can, all we can. It's cool and people chant for us and wrestling's evolved. And then there's the the people, even the younger guys, but who have been trained and introduced and broken in and brought to the business the right way and by experienced people who know how to do it right and would try to do that adapted to the modern environment, but they get pushed aside in a lot of cases or not listened to as much because the, hey, let's have fun and do everything we want crowd is so much more fun to hang out with. It's like in school. Do you want to have fun or do you want to learn anything? There's Now there's camps of guys that can teach you things and there's camps of guys that can let you have fun. Which one do you want to spend your professional career with? But what what do you think? Um, and I mean, I don't. I didn't mean to make mockery of him because he did. He sent out a picture of him holding one of his children and said, "Daddy's coming home." But he did do a Costanza. He bowed out at the right time. The main events at WrestleMania need to spend more time with my family. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. Three weeks later, here we go. I think there's a lot of people that have been unhappy in WWE, and if they see an easy exit ramp, they're going to take it. And he obviously had an easy exit ramp. He was able to show up in AEW the next week, right? Go right to work, start working right away. I think he's a really good hire. From everything I've ever heard from anyone who has worked with him or been around him, seems like a solid guy to have backstage as a producer. Well, and see, also the thing is, I was going to bring up, and this is not even self-serving, but there's an OVW connection here. Pat Buck spent a long time at OVW. Unfortunately, it was right after I had left, uh, but he was there for several years. Um, and when he moved back home to New York, he opened the school that, that uh, he's opened, patterned after, and he told me this himself. I mean, it's not like I'm putting words in his mouth. When I saw him several years ago at, at an event, he's, he patterned it after not only the 
the facility, the customized warehouse and training center, and you can tape and you can do this and that, but also the training program and the style of the type of things. Obviously, everybody has their own methods and unique style of teaching people to do stuff, but the the concept, the idea, it was OVW. And that school that he established there, well, guess who spent a lot of time there when he was breaking into business? MJF. Potentially why maybe he understands at this young age wrestling and how to be a star and how to get over. I mentioned on the, what's the last program we did two and a half days? The drive through my show. Your show. Yeah. And you're welcome to it. Um, I mentioned just some things that Mike Mondo had been tweeting. Mondo's worked with Buck quite a bit. Mondo's from New York also. Mondo came to OVW to a seminar when he was 19 years old, and we saw his innate talent and and personality and invited him. And those are the days of OVW when we had seminars that you had to pay to attend And then at the end of it, we would evaluate you and decide whether we would invite you to come and pay to join our program. You couldn't just pay us and we'd take you. We had to invite you because we felt in some respect that you had a legitimate shot at being a pro wrestler in some fashion. Maybe not necessarily the WWF champion, but you could do it. And if we saw that the odds were long on, you know, because of your age or your conditioning or your size or your is something intangible that you just ain't going to get it, we wouldn't take your money and yank your pud, right? But Mondo, at 19, excelled in, in that program, obviously went to the WWF and got the, one of the world's worst gimmicks of all time, and it killed his in-ring career pretty much, but... He trained in the developmental program. He trained many of the modern-day top stars or helped train them. He worked with the biggest names in the business around the world. Um, I've mentioned before he mo-capped, motion-captured the video games for the WWF because he could do everybody's shit better than they could. But he, it, I'm not, as I said, I'm not going to self make this about self aggrandizement because the OVW program I'm talking about was Danny Davis's and Rip Rogers. Obviously, I was booking the, the shows and the, the television, but the training and the concepts and the basic wrestling 101 was, was Rip Rogers through Danny, uh, Danny Davis and through Rip Rogers. By the time most of these got, guys got here, Danny had stepped out of the ring as far as physically hands-on training. But it was the same concept because the same concepts of logic and common sense and physical endurance, good and evil, etc., never change. People just try to change them. It doesn't work. <clears throat> so, and there's a Johnny Jeter who also got in the St. Valentine's Day massacre of, you know, bad gimmicks with Mondo and the Spirit Squad. He's opened up a training program in California to try to, uh, I mean, these guys are still only 40 years old. It's just that they were run out of the business at an early age and the mainstream because of their ridiculous gimmicks. Um, They're trying to teach some of the younger guys so that we don't see the paralysis and the spinal surgeries and the fucking body casts and halos and all this shit. 
And also, in some cases, with a lot of these guys, they could teach the promoters and the bookers or the alleged matchmakers or the creative teams of various companies. What the fuck are you doing? Why do you put your talent in unwinnable positions because you think that something you've dreamed up would be a cool match that they can't perform or it would be detrimental for them to do so? Things of that nature. So I wanted to actually, I'll run a couple of them by you. Let's see what uh, what we come up with. This is not groundbreaking stuff, but it's amazing that apparently now there are wrestling schools that this is these are not some of the first things you learn. These are tweets from the Mike Mondo. I'd tweet Jeter, but I don't know that he's on Twitter or not. Uh, if Jeter, if you are, tweet me. I owe you a phone call, but I owe everybody else a phone call too. Mike Mondo tweets, a hot tag is the buildup of intensity and drama in a tag match. A tag is hot when the crowd is at its highest point after many failed attempts by the babyface to succeed and make the tag. Huh. Well, who could have ever thought something is this? How about, the, you, how about this one? Brian, how revolutionary is this? You can wrestle, then fight, but you can't fight, then go back to wrestling. It doesn't make sense and is not logical. Be aware when crossing that line. How many times do you see guys jumpstart something, fucking bash each other around ringside, and then throw each other back in the ring and start doing drop-down arm drag? It's fucking foolish. How about this one? When a comedian tells a joke and the people laugh, he or she pauses and waits for the people to stop before telling the next joke. Wrestling's the same. If I get a reaction from a move, I'm going to pause and get the most out of it. Don't step on your own shit by doing move after move. This business is based on emotion. If you can make people feel happy, sad, angry, frustrated, excited, etc., you're doing your job right. Real-life feelings everyone's experienced at some point. They can relate, understand, and identify to that. Emotion is what sells tickets. I like this one. There's no such thing as a rest hold. A rest hold would be just grabbing a rear chin lock and just sitting there. No emotion, no facial expressions. When did rest hold become a term that the smart fans started using? It was a newsletter term, correct? It wasn't in wrestling business term no that's yeah. yeah that's that's what i'm saying it's it, yeah because i remember i don't know if uncle dave was the first i remember seeing it in the observer but it the newsletters of the early smart fans in the 80s coined that phrase right and now the guys use it and as mondo says there is no such thing as that there's tweets about Develop a good relationship with the commentators and cameramen. They can make or break you. Communicate with them. Allow them to help tell your story and get you over. What about fundamentals? What about the more over a baby face is, the less you have to do to him in the heat. Slow down, listen to the people, let your baby face sell, and grab more holes. Which, again, is true. You have to do nothing to Steve Austin poke him in the eye and down he goes and people are on your ass if it's some fucking schlub they've never seen before you can cut his head with a chainsaw it doesn't matter here's one i like the reason why it was a big deal the first time someone kicked out of undertaker's tombstone 
is because he always beat people with it. Get your finish over first before having someone kick out or counter it. Establish the move. Do you see guys now just going for their finish that they may have successfully performed on television maybe once, maybe twice, and letting people just reverse it and get out of it and do their own to them in return? We see that all the time, and that was one of the benefits yeah. to the format of wrestling for the years is you got to see these matches with star wrestlers against preliminary wrestlers. You got to see the finishing move over and over and over again to the point where if anyone ever actually did kick out of it, it really meant something. Yes. And that's why in, in a, a house show, I used to jokingly say only if we, it was over a hundred grand, but I think we slipped some in that was over 80 if they were hot crowds, but Riggy Morton would kick out of the rocket launcher right before he got the hot tag and Hoot made to come back but only on the big show and after nobody else on TV had ever kicked out of it. Um, as a, following up on the rest hold, when grabbing a hold, don't just sit there catching your breath with a blank stare on your face. Grab the hold with intent and actually work the hold. Body language, facial expressions. Make me believe what you're doing is legit. Not enough heels today. Manipulate and cheat behind the referee's back. If the ref sees you cheat, you're just putting heat on the referee and not yourself. Keep the referee credible. Some of these would have to have an asterisk not applicable in AEW. Well, I was going to say, you also need a referee that's credible. Yeah. Again, uh, your match doesn't begin and end when the bell rings. It begins when you come through the curtain and ends when you go back through the curtain. Always be working. Attention to detail. If I punch a guy, I might register my own hand because I hit him so hard. The two most important matches on the card, the first match and the last match. First match sets the tone, gets people up and excited, baby face over. Last match drew the money. It's the last impression people are going to go home remembering. Leave them wanting to come back. Being able to call a match in the ring. When Here's one. When you're bumping and feeding for a comeback, heels don't just run into the guy to take move X, Y, and Z. Draw back and look like you're coming with something, but the baby face beats you to the punch. Every comeback is a guy just running straight into a motherfucker's fist. And I like now how some guys throw a punch with their right hand where you just kick your feet out underneath their arm and the guy doesn't even need to be in front of you. You just run to the side and he sticks his fist in your face. Fuck. Anyway, um, you know, there, there's all kinds of things here about body language in a big arena or stadium working the last row. Don't do a double down, as they call them now, but a double knockout in a six to eight minute match. There's no reason you shouldn't be that exhausted. Uh, <laughs> I never understood when somebody would tell me they're a tweener. You're either a heel or a baby face. Please don't confuse me if I'm watching your match. It's amazing that you can now learn more on Twitter from some guys than you can from actually watching the current wrestling pro or going to some of the wrestling schools, apparently. I think that's one of the things is that, you know, when you talk about fundamentals, it's not just headlocks and wrist locks. It's also the fundamentals of the logic of wrestling. And some of these guys, whoever trains them or if they just decide they're going to ignore whatever good advice they were ever given, go in a completely different direction. Well, and it goes back to it. I'm, I'm talking about Rip Rogers now, but it's not like he was 
had a unique style of his era, possibly because he lasted longer than some of the other trainers and came to the modern era where people were just mortified that he would say, oh, you're fucking rotten, you fucking douchebag, you fucking idiot, fucking do it over. Everybody loved Rip, uh, except the goddamn corporates with the suits. That, oh my God, somebody's going to sue us because he's so profane. He taught Pat McAfee in a barn how to wrestle better than the current AEW world champion because at least McAfee's a star, has a personality, and can get over. That's what you. That's how you learn. That's what you did. You taught guys how to think, not how to fucking imitate a trained chimpanzee and do the fucking move. You you it, it educated their minds on what they were doing and how to think about it, and then they could figure the rest of the shit out after you t- teach them how to bump and be safe. But it's it's more mental, and it, it, nobody is doing that because they're so wrapped up on oh I've. You know, I've got a guy that looks like a dinosaur that can do a backflip. Fucking hell. And it's all, it's education is what it is. Yeah, and I wouldn't say he looks like a dinosaur. He dresses like a dinosaur. Yes, he does. He looks and dresses. Actually, when you see him without his mask, he looks like a dinosaur too. But I'm telling you, Brian, it's education. People have to have education. They got to have some learning for the particular profession that they want to be in. And if you're going to, if you want to be a wrestler, you got to learn not only how to wrestle, but how to think about wrestling. And if you want to be one of those professional bots out there that harasses companies like AEW, I understand this is a big market for it these days. You've got to learn how to write all the codes, right? I wouldn't suggest this for as you put it, all the bots out there, this is a completely different thing. No, 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 because now a bot is a highly paid job. We've heard this from Tony Khan himself because he said that the bots are out after AEW, and who could possibly go to an expense like that? That must be an incredible expense to get all these people to build all these bots to tweet bad things about all these wrestling promotions. And the people that are learning how to write all this code that builds all these bots that does all these things are the graduates of code Academy code Academy folks can help you reach your coding goals. Whether you're looking to take down a wrestling promotion or potentially just conquer the world, because after all, we now know that everybody that knows how to run these computers is going to be in charge of things after the cataclysm. Over 50 million people already know that Code Academy is the best way to learn to code, but jump in now because some of those people are going to have to be eliminated. We've smartened up too many people to our business. So there's always going to be new spots in this environment, in this particular <laughs> endeavor, because after some people get too smart and outlive their usefulness, they have to be moved on out to the farm. Folks, you that, can learn at your own That's pace. not how this works at all. And there's I none know. of that. No one has to worry about being moved out to the farm, as Jim just put it. Disappeared. Wait, no. wait, not, no one not. Has, certainly no one has to worry about that. Because a code academy, no. Well, here's the thing. If you know, the people that write the code, everything's in the computers now. Your 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 whole life, your social security number, your address, your all of your information, they could just go in there and 
erase you from the computer. And then when people that knew you were looking around, other people went, no, he doesn't exist. You must be imagining this. See, you could actually disappear people if you take the right course at Code Academy because you no, can you choose can't. what to learn. No, you can't. Don't. You can choose building basic websites, artificial intelligence. And here it says everything else you could want. If I want to make all traces of a motherfucker disappear that he's never lived on this planet, that's a thing I could want, and they will teach it to no, you. No, they won't. They do not teach that. They do not teach anything like that, and they don't encourage that. I'm and not saying that they Whoever they this motherfucker may be, however he disappears, has nothing to do with Code Academy. No, I'm not saying they're actually going to teach you how to go and throw him in the trunk of your car. You got to learn that on your own. But you can sure erase any evidence that he existed with one of the courses at Code Academy that teaches you coding languages like Python and Hitomosis and Squall and JavaScript and more. And if you're not sure where to begin or who to start with, Codecademy will point you in the right direction. They may suggest somebody, hey, you might want to work on him first. Anyway, you can take Codecademy's programming personality quiz to get tailored career advice and course recommendations based on your, your strengths and interests. For example, if you're a highly technical, highly organized, and highly demanding person, you might want to be one of the people that are running one of the continents after the great takeover. Get instant feedback. Your code is tested as soon as you submit it. If nothing blows up, they'll call you back and let you continue. An interactive platform helps you learn by doing. That's the way I've learned everything from the time I was a kid. Thankfully, I was born a boy or I'd had nothing to play with. You can build your own portfolio and get a certificate of completion to make yourself more marketable to future employers or possibly future sponsors that may want to take the place of this one when I finish burning this down. Folks, yeah. you can land your dream job oh. in web development, programming, computer science, data science, and tons more of those sciences. Or become yeah. a marine biologist. Join the over 50 million people learning to code with Code Academy and see where coding can take you. Get 15% off your Code Academy Pro membership when you go to codecademy.com and use promo code experience. That's promo code experience at codecademy.com. 15% off the best way to learn to code. C O D E C A D E M Y.com. Promo code experience. The best way to learn to code or the best way to learn to spell is Code Academy. All right, we should start talking about the wrestling, but before we do that, I just want to say we're almost there, Brian. The big landmark milestone, millstone around our neck, whatever it may be. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel is less than 10,000 subscribers away from 300,000. That's exactly right. There's not much to add to that other than subscribe now. Come on, be number 300,000. And do I get a cake? I think number 300,000 gets a cake. Well, how are we going to know exactly? A everybody subscribes 72 times. Sooner or later, it's like hitting the lottery. But anyway, yes, almost 300,000. They said it couldn't be done. Who said that? They did. Well, they were wrong, weren't they? Very wrong. All right. I guess it's time. <laughs> you know, actually, Raw, despite the interruptions from near-death experiences and and god trying to smite me uh, the first little part of raw wasn't too bad 
And the main star of Raw is now Cody Rhodes. We we couldn't wait to not see him in AEW, and now I want to watch everything he does. My, what a, as Jimmy Hart would say, what a fresh coat of paint does for people. Can you believe this? That it, he went from their own fans booing him out of the building to him being the the god of Raw and the people are into it over there on that side of the fence. You can't say they weren't because they were. No, they were. And I think it's a different audience. I mean, that's one of the big takeaways when I was watching it is just if you look at the makeup of who's in that crowd, you look at the ages, you look at the kids. It's a different audience. And it's an audience very accepting of the Cody story as it's been laid out and the way he says it. And it's a perfect story. And I'm still not even completely <laughs> calm and happy with the way he's saying it because he's so well-spoken. Well, it, the, the, the common man aspect is I'm thinking somebody, you know, is going to need a thesaurus, but it's a perfect wrestling story. There's well-spoken and then there's talking, well, going out of your way deliberately using words that you really don't need to use, and it doesn't connect with people the same way it would with, let's say, a Dusty. My favorite Dusty Rhodes made-up word, a ribbidigurgy. It was a battle cry he had in Florida in the 70s, and I, it may be from a Western movie. I have no idea, but a ribbidigurgy. People loved it. Anyway, so they start Raw with a package, of Seth and Cody at WrestleMania, and then again last week, and the first segment is Miz TV with Cody. And I must say, I don't and never will get Miz, but he started to grow on me a bit here over the course of the the evening. They boosted the the music mix. I heard the line as clear as day. Wrestling has more than one royal family. Is that the, I, I refuse to believe that that's the same way they've been playing it. Cause I heard it cl plain as day. And I know I'm partially deaf in one ear because of the whole being struck by lightning thing. Everybody bombarded me because I'd never been able to understand what that line was, but it sounded clearer. Did, did you even pay any attention? No, I thought it definitely sounded clearer. And also I wondered if it's just because now that we know what the lyric is or lyric, now that we know what he's saying, we could hear it easier. No, because I still, I couldn't hear it on the WrestleMania mix. I don't know. Anyway, I was at same TV. Nevertheless, we won't spend a ton of time on that. They've canned the lift, apparently, but he's got four sets of pyro. So, I mean, he was on a flat fucking ground here. There wasn't really any way they could raise him up, I guess, unless, <laughs> unless they got my heating and air people to drill into the ducts. Uh, but it was a big-time entrance, and it's all on him. There's no Arn. There's no Brandy. There's no entourage. There's no family and friends. He's he's said his dog may make an appearance at some point, but then that would be permissible. A man needs a dog. But it's all, all the attention is on him and all the... And I'm the biggest Arn Anderson fan in the history of the world. But he they were he was doing nothing. They were having him do nothing. And it was not the way to utilize. I understand where Tony Khan was going with the well, because Arn and Dusty were rivals for so long. Now he's blessing his son with the knowledge. Of, well, then 
do something with it besides Arn standing around with a Waffle House menu and once a year he falls off the stage. They just anyway, the fans are chanting Cody. And did you hear? <laughs> there, I bet there was no joy over in Mudville when Cody's first line was, "Hey, it's been a long time since I got to be in front of a crowd like this." I thought that was a very interesting opening line. Yes. And it could be taken a number of ways. The size of the crowd, the, the, it didn't look that big. The, well, the positive out, I'm just saying the positive outpouring of the crowd is probably where it, but it could be taken a number of different ways. Uh, but he kept, you know, upstaging Miz as obviously that's what this was designed to is to get the new star over. And, Obviously, we now know that they can't say shit on Raw like they can on on AEW. But I don't know. I, I, I like him using the wrestling terms like belt and uh, wrestler. It's I mean, a wrestling term like wrestler. My God, where have we gone to this point? But when he called Mike uh, or Mike Miz, well, a good old reliable Mike, he called him a full-blown carny. Would the only is Carney now a thing just in normal life where people call shady people or crooks or shysters carnies, or is that only in the wrestling world? And then in that case, is that reference over the WWE crowd's heads because the only ones really deep enough into it to know what a carny is to begin with are the AEW fans? I've never heard Carney used by anyone outside of the world of wrestling, and half the people I've here who use it in wrestling, misuse it. Yeah, I was about to say, don't use it right either. And and the the Hardly Boys think everybody's a carny yeah, somehow. Yeah, they're, they're two That's, of the biggest offenders, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're actually two of the biggest carnies, and they don't even know <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, really? <laughs> they don't even know it. They're two of the, if you go by the old school wrestling definition from 80 years ago of carnies, they're the two of them and don't know it. So Miz had to correct him. I bet Cody knows it. That they're well, the two it, biggest carnies. <laughs> yeah, he knows it. But Miz had to correct Cody about it's a title, a championship title, a belt holds up your pants. So now they're making Cody a babyface to the fans who hate the goofy WWE verbiage. And we've talked about the even the modern WWE fans, right? And people, let's say they started watching WWE only, no other forms of the wrestling business. Five, six, seven years ago, recently, whatever. Do any of those people ever say, did you see the sports entertainment show last night? Or did you get the tickets to sports entertainment? Or any, do, do they ever use that phrase? Nobody does. No. Nobody ever, even the new fans, because it was Vince's marketing ploy, that, because he thought that advertisers, and there's obviously a lot of truth to that, didn't respect the wrestling business and want to spend money on it, so he was going to call it something different and make perception reality. People have been laughing at me for 30 years for saying, telling that story. That's basically the honest-to-God truth, and only now that people have been exposed to inner workings of how Vince's mind works do they realize that's exactly what he did. But nobody, that's why nobody calls a belt a title. Well, now they do. They've got that one. The, the, even some of the modern wrestlers call, oh, let me see your title. So he got that one over, but they can't get sports entertainment over. I saw a clip 
or a photo, and it must have been from WrestleMania, I don't know what they call it, fan access, whatever their convention is for WrestleMania, and where they sell the replica belts. And the store, like that, the, the marquee, said championship titles. <laughs> and just even seeing the words together, it's so awkward. It's so unnecessary to get around saying the word belt <laughs> that everyone uh, uses in boxing, in wrestling, and everywhere else for a championship belt. Anyway, so they went back and forth, and Cody said wrestlers, and and they're going to wrestle later on in the program, and Cody says, may the best man win, and then turns to leave, and Miz charges at him, and Cody shit cans him to the floor, and Miz makes mean face, and at least it got us up for the match later on. Okay, let's see what's going to happen. But again, just this transition, and Vince obviously making the decision and telling everybody this is what we're going to do and everybody's going to be behind it. And I've seen him be in this mindset. We're going to get behind it. We're going to do it. And he does it until the guy himself (laughs) fucks it up in some kind of way. So if Cody doesn't fuck it up, Vince is pushing him to the moon and he looks like a bigger deal here than he has anywhere ever. TNA, Ring of Honor, et cetera, et cetera. And I never saw any of his previous WWE run, to be quite honest with you, because that's when I wasn't watching any wrestling. That's been six years ago now. It's when we had just started the podcast, and you just came on board, and we hadn't been roped into this whole fucking fiasco of uh, critiquing people's promotional wars yet. So... He certainly, they, they they didn't do this with him last time he was there. Let's put it that way. So he's a bigger deal now than anywhere ever. We shall see. Later on, Cody versus Miz. Did you love the next match? Who, what have the Mysterios done? Did they accidentally back over Vince's dog? The last few weeks have been puzzling with the Mysterios. I'm guessing it may not be the Mysterios. It may just be that Vince may have fallen out of whatever kind of affection he had for Dominic Mysterio. Well, but Ray got just blistered and carted out the last week or whatever. But anyway, it, it was it was Dominic Mysterio, poor fella, against old Beer Mayhan. And uh, Beer killed him and they stretchered him. And the fucking... The fake EMTs they had were Russian... So hard because apparently they've been told you got to get him on the backboard before the break or whatever. I mean, I've seen I've seen firefighters trying to evacuate somebody from a burning building that weren't rushing like these people trying to tape this poor kid to a backboard. But the Mysterio's fortunes have changed. Let's just say that. Uh, AJ Styles and Damian Priest. I wanted to like this so bad. But I, from the time they started in the back, there in the backstage area, the camera's on AJ. Somebody starts to say something to him. Suddenly, he sees the guy he wants. He sees Damian Priest, and he goes over. And they're doing the jerky ca- epileptic camera movements now, not only in the matches but also in the backstage fights. Could you tell if we? We knew they were fighting, but I don't really know what they were doing because I was seasick from watching that camera. 
but they had a little bit of a scuffle in the backstage area. It's your buddy Kevin Dunn. You can thank for that. Jesus Christ. So then they have the they start the match. And honestly, for AJ being so smooth, and and we've been a fan of Priest, and he showed a lot before. Um, and I'm not saying he sucks, but the first two minutes they didn't have this together for the first couple minutes, and then all of a sudden it got good for about 30 seconds, and they went straight to the break. And they came back after three minutes. Now you've lost any kind of interest you, they'd started you with, and they're getting the he's getting the heat on AJ, and somehow AJ's head was busted open, and AJ did a sloppy backflip DDT that, well, I'd, I don't know whether it was AJ sloppy, he's not usually, or whether Priest is too tall for it or whatever, if it didn't work. AJ made his comeback. Priest stopped him and got a two count, kicked the shit out of him, went for his finish. AJ Pele kicked him, and he, Priest did a great sell on that. And then AJ was going for something, and Priest kicked him off the apron of the ring and then just turned around and kneeled down in the middle of the ring and the lights went out and the blue spotlight came on and he made a mean face and they went to the break. And the what match had that? gotten good <laughs> at the end there and we were following a bing, bing, bing. And suddenly he kneels down, blackout, blue spotlight because it's edges lighting. He makes a mean face. They go to the break. When they come back on the other side of the break, it's the announcers. The, the arena's lit back up. The announcer is saying, well, before the break, here's what you say. And they recap the lighting effect. And then they didn't ever tell us what happened. The, why did the match end? Where did AJ go? Why did they stop this? Why did the light? What the fuck? And then they go back to AJ in the back. And he's pissed at obviously at, at Damian Priest, but there's no explanation of what caused the match to stop. The lighting effect changed. AJ wasn't hurt. The other guy's kneeling in the middle of the ring. And they and and if this is an an unexpected occurrence for this light to come on Damian Priest like that, then how did the announcers or the director anybody in the truck know to go to break and if the match did end and it had to end in front of their eyes even if everybody just walked away so wouldn't you have thought that somebody would tell well you know the lights so they just all walked away what the fuck was this what caused the lights to all of a sudden shine right on Damian Priest's face. <laughs> I don't know what this was other than this wasn't wrestling. It's Edge's influence from the hills of Asheville, North Carolina. Is there a chance that Malachi Black is behind all this? It's stupid enough for that. Right. That's what makes me think it. <sighs> this is so not good. The match just ended. I, I think that AJ Styles is really stale right now. Whatever they're doing with him isn't working for me. And Damian Priest, I'm just not interested like I used to be. There's still time, but this isn't doing it. And th the problem that they have created for themselves also in the WWE, and possibly while the serious producers want to jump ship, the matches mean nothing. 
on television at least, uh, and and a lot of the pay per view matches mean nothing. And they've trained people that they because they just get out of them in just idiotic ways. It might be a real quick, and we'll go to Miz and Cody in a second. But it remember, the opposite effect uh, in TNA, we're at a taping in Orlando, two thousand eight ish. Of course, you know who's writing uh, the formats. And in the production meeting where they all get run through, we've talked about that. One of my matches that I was supposed to produce didn't actually start. And I can't remember what the the whole thing was, chapter and verse. But the point is, as soon as it was read through and I said, Cornette, you got that. I was, okay, here's a problem. You've got to finish for this match. The match never actually started. And so it, it, some of his screwy shit were in some fashion, shit would just start taking place. And I said, you can't have a finish of a match if the match never started, if you want to have a finish. If you don't want to have a finish, it can just be a fight. But if you have a finish, then it's got to start. Of course, Shitstain says, nobody's going to notice. <laughs> I go to the, I believe it was four wrestlers basically involved in it. I think that was the number. Brian, what do you think the first thing that one of them looked at me and said was? What's the finish? No. What's the I start? I told them the finish. They said, well, wait a minute. How can we have a finish? We didn't start. <laughs> so I went back to Shitstain. I said, well, everybody in this match is one wondering how they can have a finish when they never started. And he rolls his eyes like that is a ridiculous question that would impugn the integrity of his goddamn Shakespearean efforts. Well, is it, a lot of times I think these writers just say, well, there's no reason for anyone to win at the end or start at the beginning. It's not the writers. I mean, the stuff they're producing may not be what we like, but they're doing it to serve a master. This is Vince. Oh, yes, he's 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 blessing it and passing it and everything. I'm just saying the, the ones that are most affected and or offended by this are the wrestlers that have to perform it and the producers that have to figure out a way to make it make sense. Do you think Damien Priest is happy? I don't know. I don't know if he's happy, sleepy, grumpy, doc. I don't know. I mean, there it, with him and Edge, I can see something there, obviously, but I don't know what was going on here. Let's get to Miz and Cody. Um, again, second entrance in an hour, people are still with it. They're not hooting at it. He, did you see the nice touch? He's not going to wear the weight belt into the matches and then take it off and whip a guy for whatever reason at an inopportune time. He's going to come out and give it to a small child at ringside. Brent with the sunglasses, right? It, it, again. Both these guys can work. Uh, I, I don't get Miz, but he's athletic and, you know, he can do the moves. He's somehow been portrayed as a main event guy for some reason. So it was perfect here because this, I'm not going to recap the match. They started hot to kept up a quick pace. Cody did all his stuff. Miz cut him off and get some heat. Cody made a brief comeback for a break spot where he'd get knocked to the floor. They come back. 
a little more heat, a big comeback. Fucking uh, does one big dive, comes off the top rope, tweaks his knee. Miz gets a figure four. Cody reverses it. Miz gets the ropes, and Cody hits the Cody Cutter crossroads three count. That's exactly what it should be. They did everything right. Because, again, this is, say what you want, and we have, about Vince and or the whole company, but if they decide they're going to make a star, or they're going to sign a new talent and push him and get him over to where they can get a return on their investment, they do the right thing with him at the start. A newcomer to the company in his first television match against a guy that used to, to be a and is still considered a longtime main eventer. It's a competitive match, but the, the new guy wins with his finish that he only used once. It didn't take but once. It didn't, oh, let's give him three crossroadses. That's the way you debut a star. Now the people know, even if you haven't already told them with the interviews and the the pyro and the gaga and the spotlights and the footprints in Grauman's Chinese Theater, if the new guy goes competitively with a main event guy that's established as a main event guy and seen in the fans' eyes as a main event guy and then beats that guy decisively, that new guy's a main event guy. There you go. And then Seth Rollins got in the ring and weirdly asked for a rematch. I, I think, is it Mike Johnson or Dave Shearer on PWInsider.com that is now using the term Sething for whatever it is that, <laughs> that he funny. does and how he moves down to the ring and swims in the air? He's Sething. And so we're going to see, a, and I won't mind seeing that match again. And uh, it, it shows they're not rushing uh, Cody versus Roman Reigns or whatever. But uh, I don't know. On the other hand, though, that's one of the things I was kind of thinking this is like an area where almost applying the AEW logic kind of worked if Cody just won the match and moved on to something else because everyone does rematches. And once you start rematching everyone nonstop, it means less and less. It's like Cody's back in their system. Rematch with Seth. And then there'll be a rematch with Seth after that. <laughs> and then they'll move on to something else and he'll have rematches with that person. Well, but how many others they got that can just go, you know, maybe they ought to do the legend killer thing again. Bring back a bunch of uh, legends and let Cody beat them because at least they're over. Hey, Kevin Owens is his buddy. You got to figure they're going to do him and Kevin Owens at one point. Remember, Kevin Owens is the one that linked him up with the Young Bucks before he left WWE six years ago. Oh, good Lord. I did not actually remember that because I don't know that I ever knew that because it wasn't my week to watch him and I don't really <laughs> care. But um. Anyway, so poor Tommaso Ciampa, he's now on Raw in a backstage pre-tape where Elias is telling him he's Ezekiel. And speaking of Owens, that's what brought this up. Owens comes in and he doesn't buy it. You're Elias. You're not Ezekiel. Is everybody crazy around here? And they didn't even have the guy lose a loser, leave town and come back under a mask and have Bob Geigel threaten to suspend him forever if he's on. Anyway. Liv Morgan wrestled Naomi. Did you see that? No. Good. Bobby Lashley was in the ring. And the ring was set up for the VIP lounge. And did Bobby Lashley call almost, almost? 
I've had several people write in to say that, so you're not the only one who thought it. And I don't think he's trying to do it. I th- possibly it just it's a Freudian thing, or just a, a subconscious from his deep unconscious. The crowd started whatting him. Austin coming back has now made that a thing because now it's been a few weeks in different cities, and they're still going to start doing it again, aren't they? They never stopped. They'll never stop doing it. I thought it had died down at some point. Where I, I it's been... never gone away completely. Yeah, but anyway, Bobby is better when he fires up and is shortened to the point because he's a beast-looking guy, and he can, you know, he. But he's at the same time we've talked about this. He's such a nice guy and has a pleasant voice. And when he's trying to tell a reflective story on, like he was trying to do here, lay out the situation with MVP, how, why did he stab him in the back, et cetera, whatever. When he fires up and gets mad and has somebody to talk to, he's got some oomph to him. When he's trying to tell this somewhat complicated story, he just sounds so pleasant and also a little rehearsed. But when MVP comes out, he gets fired up and they're yelling back and forth. And MVP did a great job. I don't know where they found a suit to fit almost. Um, But MVP cut the promo about how he made Lashley. And then Lashley didn't need him at Mania, blah, blah, blah. And MVP is already... At least it's not just almost standing there with that dull look on his face. now. The the monster with an evil mastermind is a little scarier than just the monster wandering around because the monster does not. I don't care how big he is, is he is almost por- projecting a lot of menace or just menace to the fans because they know the match is going to suck, or is he a dangerous, dangerous man, an undercover agent for the FBI? Well, I don't know about that, but he certainly seems like a dangerous man. I think the fans buy him as that which makes his booking even more puzzling. But we'll see. MVP is a great promo. He's great on the mic. I just, I, he saved the whole segment. Well, yes. I'm just with, with almost, you got the guy that's that size. I, I think if nothing else, everybody think, you know, I could outrun him. Cause he, <laughs> I just don't know if he's, oh, I think MVP will definitely add a lot of that. But then Lashley, uh, he fired up at the end and tossed, tossed, tossed. Tosh 2.0, tossed all the furniture out of the ring and and tore the setup. So there was a little aggression out of that, but at least MVP is in the mix so we don't have to see that single match again with nobody outside. Uh, They've done it again. What have they done to our boy, Brian? Why can't anybody keep two names? We always talk about this. This is a great example of sometimes it appears the wrestler's safe. They've been there a while. They've established their name. And now we're just supposed to pretend like we never heard the first name ever before. It just and because Austin Theory and Vince together, and this is what he actually said. Me and Vince decided after WrestleMania, well, basically, fuck Steve Austin. And my name's just Theory. So his name is Theory. Here comes Theory. They couldn't even change his first name and announce that he 
took his mother's maiden name and he will now be, you know, fucking, I don't know, evolution theory. I don't know. We have a riddle. We have a theory. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. And and this was such a big thing for them. They've been pushing this kid, and now it was such a big, important thing for them to change his name that they did it in a pre-tape, and then Owens comes in and is still pissed about Elias and wants him to take a lie detector test. They stepped on Theory's name change in a pre-tape, even. Um, and Now, by the way, I want to mention at this point in time, Bianca Belair had made an entrance and then they went to a break, and then they went to that convoluted pre-tape, and now they come back to the fucking uh, ringside so that they can pitch to a VTR package. <laughs> Bianca Belair stood in that ring in front of those people with nothing to do, apparently, but wave for 10 fucking minutes. Did you notice that? Yeah, and it, she's not unique. They've been doing this to lots of people on Almost every show. It happens on SmackDown all the time, Oh, I know, too. but this was egregious. I mean, before the break, I can understand and dance around the ring for three minutes or whatever, but I'm talking break and then pre-tape and then pitch and then package, and it's like, fuck, she could have taken a nap and been wide awake by the time that they came back. Anyway, she didn't deserve that. Uh, but she did deserve the win over Zelina in, what was it, two fucking minutes or whatever. But then here comes Cruella DeVille, and they go to another break. So I think they were just trying to rib Bianca and say, can can we keep you out until the fucking fans are filing out? So she stood there through another break, staring at Cruella, and then Cruella is there with the contract in her hand. She's found her newest challenger. This took forever. Cruella's given it the big buildup. But it was it was a long, big buildup. And finally, Bianca says, fuck it, I'm going to sign this open contract. Whoever it is, bring her out. Big intro. And then as Bianca's standing there staring at the entryway, Cruella comes from behind with a chop block and then hits her finish on her. It's her. She's the opponent and signs the contract. For one thing, is she still in the office? Because Pierce was not happy later on. If we don't find out that she's been relieved of her official duties, which it has been a while, maybe this is her transition back into the ring. But I didn't mind the little heat angle at the end there, but would the thing to do would be if you were going to attack somebody from behind, Brian, if they were standing in front of you and didn't know there was any danger from behind them and were staring at an entryway for somebody else, and all their attention was there, would the first thing that you would think of to do be drop down on your hands and knees and chop block the left knee, or would it just be to just punch the motherfucker right in the back of the head? Well, more than likely it would be that. Yeah. So, anyway. Then they went to a the bachelorette party, and I refused to pay close enough attention to this to see who the fuck's even getting married or what's going on here, but there were a bunch of plastic, surgically enhanced young ladies at a fake bar doing a bachelorette party and fighting at the same time over the 24-7 title. And I said, well, this is so rotten, I'm just 
checking out the main event and I'm out. And I fucking started fast forwarding and realized the main event was RK bro against the alpha Academy feeding into Usos and the street profits and a bunch of scripted caca acting in the middle. And there you go. And the Usos did what Roman wanted them to do, at least in part when they grabbed a hold of and took possession of both sets of tag team belts at the end of the show. I've seen all those people enough, and I don't really care. What'd you think? I refuse to watch any of that tag team stuff to end the show. <laughs> it's three hours. You have to pick, and, and plus it's three hours and then two hours on Tuesdays when we don't have tornadoes, and I remember to watch it, and two hours on Wednesdays. Plus we got evil now, and an hour on Fridays, and two more hours on Fridays, and there's a battle of the belts coming up this weekend, and blah, blah, blah. And if anybody's mad that we zipped through some of this, well, fuck, they ought to be more interesting. Right? Is Battle of the Belts this weekend? Oh, yeah, Saturday oh, night. shit. Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, it's only an hour, though. You can uh, watch the Battle of the Belts quarterly special in half the time that you can the regular Wednesday night weekly television program. <laughs> um, right. There you have it. And again... If it I mean, the whole show practically would have blown if it wasn't for MVP joining almost and Cody doing anything, pretty much. And and who would have thought we'd be saying that three weeks ago? Was there anything else of redeeming value on him? Miz and Cody. Wait a minute. Miz and Cody. Miz and Cody, MVP with almost. Wow, three hours of television. <sighs> no wonder God sent horrible weather. Because I'll tell you what, you got to watch out for stuff like that. You got to watch out for bad weather. You got to watch out for poor commercial transitions. And if all that really gets you down <laughs> and you're just stressed out, <laughs> you know what the stress is? I'll tell you the stress, Brian. It's like a heaviness. It hangs over me. I wake up every morning, high heaviness. Oh, I'm going to be drinking early again today. You're going to be fucking with me early today, aren't you, life? If stress is a daily thing for you, how you feel it, why you feel it, what stresses you out, boom, 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 stress shows up in all kinds of ways. You grind your teeth. I've done that since I was a child. My mother always said I was high strung. Um, digestive issues. Stomach problems, ulcers, too little sleep, too much sleep, undereating, overeating. All these are signs, Brian, of stress because of the unsavory nature of the world in general today. You can't trust anybody or anything. Everybody's out to get you. It's not that I'm paranoid. It's just that everybody's out to get me. But if it seems like that to you and you want somebody to talk to that's not a relative or a close personal friend that can be completely unbiased, the folks at BetterHelp can help you out because so many of the Cult of Cornet members have sent in emails and saying that BetterHelp helped them. It's a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions. You don't have to be on camera if you don't want to. You don't have to speak if you don't want to. You can chat like the kids do. 
They want to make it available to you to communicate in whatever fashion that you're more comfortable with, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy, as well as no waiting rooms and people staring down their nose at you. So, if you want help with your stress or just an outlet for somebody to talk to, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, slash J-C-E right now, because our listeners get 10% off their first month's services at BetterHelp.com. Once again, BetterHelp.com, slash J-C-E. Brian, I've been grinding my teeth since I was a child. And I never knew that it was stress. I never knew that, that that's the, at the root of it. I always just thought that I went to bed hungry and I was dreaming that I was eating. You, what? <laughs> I thought I, I must have been hungry when I went to sleep because I'm eating in my sleep. I'm chewing. There's just no food there except every once in a while. I dreamed that I went on a cookout and was eating marshmallows. I'd wake up, my pillow would be gone. Better help. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, I might want to take advantage of that offer myself one of these <laughs> days. Um, all right. Before we uh, leave the world of the WWE, a few comments on the Ric Flair evil, WWE evil. They're doing profiles of all the dastardly heels, right? And last week was Randy Orton. And I went back and I, I caught some of that, uh, but I didn't have time to go through the whole thing. But I liked. I like this one better than I like most of these profiles and documentaries because the younger guys, they spend the entire show pretty much, everybody that, all the talking heads, anybody that knows them or comments on them, and even the subject of the particular program, they will spend the majority of the time telling you how they weren't really that, how they made you hate them on purpose, how that... It was all a carefully contrived act to make you hate them, and they weren't really like that. And with this show, everybody from Flair on down said, no, this was fucking Flair. This was Flair. It's the way he lived the whole fucking life. He was better than everybody else, and he let them know it. And he had more money and more women and blah, blah, blah. He did the whole thing. Whereas as a result of that, you know, he doesn't have more money now or more women, or but he went through it all. But at least this guy was real. That's the problem with a, a documentary or a profile on any of the modern talent is the first thing you find out is they're completely not really who you thought they were. So that what, but otherwise, I told you you would love the footage on this and you would hate the talking heads. How accurate was I? The talking heads were ridiculously... <laughs> inadequate for any sort of historical wrestling piece they get the biggest bubbleheads who are only there because they blow wwe and they know that they're safe and they'll say stupid shit that usually isn't historically accurate that but, but, that shoemaker guy was back well i, I don't but not even historically accurate just in it's like asking me to comment on the space program what the fuck do i know about it if you were an expert in it you could talk to it but these people they're an expert in being wrestling fans and wanting to be involved with wwe they're not experts in actual wrestling history and it was just a bunch of idiots talking giving their opinions on rick flair so i don't think that helped i i what? jotted some of them down 
Because you said they're, I don't even know where WWE found these people because I don't know who some of them are. I know Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil, ladies and gentlemen, was legitimately on this program talking about Ric Flair. As you mentioned, who is David Shoemaker? Who is, is he even a fan or what does he do in pertaining to the world, the periphery of wrestling that you would ask him to comment on? So I've never heard the name before the last documentary where we said, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, the Andre the Giant documentary where he talked uh, with confidence about how Andre this... would tour the country as a heel and the top good guy <laughs> would wrestle the heel giant all throughout the country. This guy doesn't know anything and he's an idiot. He's part of Bill Simmons's team and he's had a wrestling podcast apparently over there for a while. And I think if you don't know, if you're a casual fan who doesn't know much, maybe you hear something like that and you think you know something, but Anyone who actually knows something looks at a guy like that and goes, this guy's a fucking idiot of the highest magnitude. And he exposes himself as that every time. And he keeps doing it. And I'll say one last thing. And I've liked 30 for 30s. And I've liked some other stuff. But one of the biggest indictments of Bill Simmons is the fact that this guy who knows nothing about wrestling is the purported wrestling expert for Bill Simmons. And they use him in documentaries, ones that are part of that group, like the Andre the Giant one. And then ones like this, the guy knows nothing. And that's what's ridiculous. And I think uh, there's too many people out there who call themselves wrestling experts or wrestling journalists or different things. And there are real wrestling journalists. I'm not saying it's everyone, but there are certain people. It's just a class of idiot you don't find in other places. Ron Funches. <laughs> I've se- He's a comedian, right? I think so. So the, I've seen on Twitter or something, Ron Funches connected to being a, so a comedian. Um, did we mention Dr. Phil, Peter Rosenberg and Sam Roberts are DJs on the radio, right? So we know this much. They're New York radio guys who are big wrestling fans. And that's what WWE yeah. looks for. Friendly radio people who will be so happy to be involved with us that they'll just blow us all the time <laughs> endlessly. And that's what they got. But uh, but basically, uh, Charlotte was on there, and Shawn Michaels, a couple of comments, and Bruce Prichard. They, at least they've ever actually been in the wrestling profession. But I love the footage. Uh, you know, they went into Flair's childhood. John Cena narrates this. They went into his childhood, and <laughs> he got in trouble <laughs> and uh, went to military school. And the AWA footage with Ganya training Chris Taylor and those guys in the barn and, and et cetera. You wouldn't know who anybody was from watching this program unless you already knew who they were, otherwise than Vern Ganya's training wrestlers. But and um, then one and then Sam Roberts like, and Vern Ganya had one of the best wrestling schools of its time, or whatever he said. I said, What? He was one of the greatest wrestling trainers of his time. Yeah. There weren't wrestling trainers. <laughs> Ganya would do camps. Every so what? Every year or two, right? If he found some good prospects, when he signed Patera and Chris Taylor out of the 72 Olympics, he put a camp together that included Kosrau, the Iron Sheik, uh, Flair, and Billy Robinson was one of the main trainers. And uh, Bob Ruggers. And Bob Ruggers was in that also. And then, you know, did he do another one a few years later when he found somebody else it wasn't like an ongoing training program steamboat there you go so anyway um they by the way uh ben brown if you're listening 
you should have made the deal I offered you about seven or eight years ago, and you wouldn't have to use fourth-generation dupes of the Mid-Atlantic films. You could have the stuff uh, transferred from the original source. I, sh I should put those back on sale now that they're advertising them. But watching this footage, it just reminds me there's no heel anywhere in the business this good anymore at being a heel. I'm not even talking about in the ring or wrestling in the ring. I'm talking about a heel performer and personality that just has the, the package, looks that good, knows what to do. They covered the rivalry with Dusty, which was the average man against the antithesis of the average man. Sandy Scott in the pull apart. Did you see that one? I did. And Flair was quoted as saying, oh, yeah, me and Dusty, you know, we, we wrestled in the Orange Bowl. We had 40,000 people. Fuck, I knew me and the Midnight shouldn't have left early that night. We were on third from last. We got out and beat the traffic. 30,000 more people came in. <laughs> uh, the cage match footage of the angle in Atlanta in September of 85 when the horseman attacked Dusty and broke his leg, and you see the fans trying to storm the cage. Twice in five years, Dusty was able to do that angle in the same building, the Omni in Atlanta, with different heels, and actually Ole was in both of them, and get people to riot and climb the fucking cage to try to save him. Um, but anyway, you know, again, all of the 80s NWA footage looks so violent, and the guys look like they're mad, and the fans are, they're not jumping up and down screaming at a cool move and going, holy shit, holy shit, fight forever. They're jumping up and down going, kill that motherfucker. I want to see it blood. That son of a bitch. I got a gun here. If you don't, if you need help, that kind of, uh, and it just, it, we've lost it. We've fucking lost it. And there was a segment on how the, the period where WCW is so mismanaged and or buried flair in the mid nineties and through, you know, Bischoff's bullshit. Then they showed shit stain shaving his head. Again, Rick has said, and he said it again here that he had lost his confidence at that point in time that, you know, he was in a bad place and he was just going along with whatever, but somebody in that, uh, it, well, I, I was about to say, and now I'll correct myself, I was about to say somebody in that company should have stopped that shaving Ric Flair's head on television with the goddamn supposed head of creative involved. He should have been beaten with a fucking axe handle for being involved in that, but that was when Bischoff and all the other people with pull wanted to humiliate Flair because they could never get over him any other way. But finally, the formation of Evolution with Batista and Triple H and Orton, it gave him his confidence back, got him to, you know, enjoying the business again. And then uh, the last segment was basically his retirement, but notoriety today, every sports figure, sports team, what is it? Give me, give me two Ric Flairs and a whoo, or two claps and a Ric Flair or whatever the fuck it is. And he's got a drip now too. Rick does. I would, if you'd have told me 35 years ago, Rick Flair was going to have a drip. I said, of course he probably has several times, but now it's actually a, a good thing. It's positive. It's positive to have a drip today, but I, you know, it was, they weren't going in 
into any detail whatsoever on any of the well-publicized, especially recently unsavory parts of his life, but it's a 45 minutes with commercials factored out uh, piece on one of the most popular and well-known wrestlers of all time. So it's going to get ratings for the USA Network, just like it did for A&E. And I love the footage, even if it was produced with a fucking trowel and a goddamn roll of duct tape. All right. <laughs> Did you love it? No, I hated it. I thought it was horrible. Yeah, no, I know. I could tell. It just, it was a badly made documentary. I mean, beyond anything, even if you like the clips, tell me that's a coherent story they told in that documentary over whatever. It felt like it was three hours. I know it was only 44 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> It was completely incoherent. It bounced all over the place. Again, you know, and I I will give you that. Whenever I even start to watch these with an element of if you didn't know, you wouldn't know after you watch this, but I already know shit, so I just recognize it. It falls apart. So that, you have a lot of people there who are just there because they please WWE and they don't know anything. That, and the other thing is, and I don't want to go too deep into this because I'm sure you don't want to right now, but when you... Have this documentary. I don't think Cena's good as a narrator. I will say that too. But when you have a documentary. He's an executive producer too, though. Did you see that? Yeah, it's his show. I mean, that's why he's narrating it. (laughs) But with Ric Flair in this documentary, they presented it like, now all these years later, look, the hip hop guys love him and the sports teams love him and all the fans just accept him and love him. I don't know if there's ever been a time more than now where there are more people who grew up loving Ric Flair who don't want to see him anymore. Who are disappointed, yeah. Without exaggeration, almost every wrestling message board, so many emails that come in, various things you see on Twitter, is people who loved Ric Flair. And it may not even be about the helicopter thing. It's not just that. It's a culmination of a lot of different things over the last 20 years or so. But I think that was, the, that was the other big thing when you're presenting it like, and now here we are all these years later, everything's just wonderful. Hey, you should have said, yeah, he's, everything's wonderful. He's unemployable. AEW wouldn't touch him. WWE wouldn't touch him. And it, they don't address anything else. I don't know. And I, again, it was an incoherent, babbling documentary where they just threw clip after clip and no, for no reason, with no sense. Badly done. Really, really badly done. Pathetic was- even. It, the the wrestling footage was somewhat edited in a mix master in terms of the you got something now and then something 10 years before it happened next and then back and forth and etc but let me ask you this then is it kind of the same thing because i mean a lot of people are going to be upset of, uh, over the dark side of the ring thing at flair but even still you mentioned before that aired more people have started on the message boards, they used to love Flair, but now it's, ah. Is it just a situation where it's kind of like Cody and AEW? At first, it was fine, but then it got a little much, and he wouldn't tone it down. And uh, Not related to Rick's in-ring work, but more his personal life. Do you think that it started being a thing where maybe 10 years ago, Rick, shouldn't you ought to, in the, in the people's mind, shouldn't you ought to slow it down? And then he was near death and in the hospital because of his, as he's admitted, alcohol abuse and et cetera, et cetera. Shouldn't he at some point start acting and appearing like a 70 
72-year-old man instead of a 72-year-old nature boy. Our people like, Rick, will you ever please slow down? We used to love you, but this has gotten too much, too far. Is Do you think that's it? I think there's a lot of that. I think there's people who know a lot about the different stories, and there have been a lot of horror stories over the last 15 years. I'm no defender of Carrie Silken. Ric Flair ripped off Carrie Silken. And a lot, of people, a lot of people know that. I'm not a big High Spots fan. Ric Flair ripped off High Spots. A lot of people know that. Ole Anderson said the reason him and Ric Flair fell out was Ric Flair borrowed money from him. Not only didn't pay him back, I think wouldn't even call him back. He's not unique with that story. There's been all these different stories. There's been scenes in bars that people have talked about. There's been rudeness to people. There's been public intoxication. I mean, it's one thing after another after another. And it doesn't seem like anything changes. And I compare him in a lot of ways to wrestling's Mickey Mantle. But Mickey Mantle eventually, at the very end, you know, after his body fell apart because of alcohol abuse, it did seem like he finally changed at the very, very <laughs> end. But Ric Flair, it's like going in reverse. And, you know, you see people in that documentary, like even Charlotte, saying there's no separation between the person Ric Flair or, you know, Richard Flair or whatever, and the nature boy. There's no separation. And I would say, but there was. Not necessarily a separation, but he understood they had a couple clips of maybe when he was on a talk show. I'm in my suit. I'm the NWA champion. I have to be professional. I have to act professional. Yeah. Talk professional. Like that version of Ric Flair is gone. Like that version's gone. The one, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, it's a pleasure to be here in this town. Like none of that. He was a heel that, when he was doing that stuff, but he but knew how to be was professional. When he first won the title. And in 1981, remember, he'd only been a nature boy for what? five, six years, maybe after the plane crash. And all of a sudden he is bestowed on the most prestigious prize in our sport for real, legitimately the NWA world heavyweight championship. And I think it, it he'd always heard, yeah, wear the suits, which he, I mean, the guys, the Carolinas, him and Valentine, all those guys, they were wearing the suits beforehand, but wear the suits, dress up the Halliburton, you're, you know, you're first class. You're representing the entire business. He invented wearing suits. If you watch that documentary, no wrestler oh, ever wore suits <laughs> to the buildings before Ric Flair. Yeah, except for Luthez and Whipper Billy Watson and Buddy Holy Rogers. Yeah, everyone. Buddy Rogers. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, but at that point when he would, he would still be Flair in gimmick on wrestling programs. But when he was doing outside media, like I said, a news show or whatever, even George Michael's sports machine the first time from that early eighties period where he was still, he wanted to make sure that he didn't do anything to taint the perception of the NWA world title. But then by the mid eighties and when he's pretty much come to own it and it's come to be synonymous with him, then he starts being able to go over the top because he can get away with it. But then he never, he never found that way to gear back a little bit on, and just became the over-the-top nature boy. You know, if you watch Letterman from the early 80s, and I'm a big Letterman fan, Paul Schaefer, you know, he was always the hip keyboard player. He had a great band. He could play cool stuff. It wasn't the kind of stuff you heard on Johnny Carson. Yeah. If you watch Letterman, I don't know, 2010 or whatever, Paul Schaefer became a character of himself. Wearing yeah. wacky outfits, his head is shaved, he's making faces when he plays keyboards. Wasn't the same guy. Ric Flair, he was never going to grow old gracefully, I guess, like a Buddy Rogers or whatever we have in our mind. 
but it seems like he's become a parody of Nature Boy Ric Flair sometimes, more than just an older version of Ric Flair. I just wish he'd slow down and take care of his health and et cetera, because, you know, he's already had a, uh, a close call there. And, you know, I'd, I'd be home underneath the dogwood tree with my feet up reading a book and watching the squirrels. But see, that's the kind of shit that makes me happy. And I don't, I don't know that Rick would have ever wanted to watch squirrels unless he could bet on who was going to climb the tree you know, the yeah. fastest or, or whatever. Unless the squirrels had kamikazes. Yeah, or possibly unless he could get a nut on the way down. So then he might. But anyway, nevertheless. Hey, um, you know, I hated it. I thought it was a horrible documentary. <laughs> but I want to say. <laughs> mentioned you, that. You brought up the Randy Orton one. I thought that was fantastic. I watched that whole thing last week. And I know you didn't. You only saw parts of it. Again, different style. Because it's really Randy telling his story with other people yeah. filling in things. I thought that was incredibly well done. I thought that was great. I liked it as a program and I liked it because it was well done and they had more wrestling talking heads that were expert and Randy does a good job, but it's just the, again, you know, where he, where he said, well, look, here's how I can make you believe what I say when I work myself up and blah, blah, blah. And it's just everything about, oh yes, this was all this carefully orchestrated plan to be a heel and to make you because the wrestling business is all entertainment and we all know this now and i just still hate that but at least with with flair yeah he was the real guy matter of fact he couldn't do most of the shit on tv didn't real life at least there's some real to wrestling uh, in that respect but. and by the way do you think anyone at wwe realizes the one clip of rick flair from mid-atlantic from your tapes that they chose was the most racist one the boy, Conway, with the funny-looking <laughs> hair. Do they realize the part they picked? <laughs> uh, yeah, that interview with his uncle, Rip Hawk. His uncle, uh, Rip Hawk. You look at that Rip Hawk, he's 60 years old. He's like 40. <laughs> I think, well, actually, I, I think that may have been the, the early thing. They were going to make him a relative of Rip's, and then he became a, a, a relative of the Anderson brothers. But uh, that was always one of the funny things, not to make light of the Ole Anderson, Ric Flair personal issues, but whenever, you know, Ole Anderson, you bring up Ric Flair, oh, he's a piece of shit. You know, he does his usual stuff. But then one of his complaints would be, we made him an Anderson. We made him an Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> like, that carries some weight. We made him an Anderson. Hey, at the time, that's what got Flair over. He's a member of the Anderson family. Well, that's all we need to know. Because they were over and nobody knew who Ric Flair was. It's all context, baby. All context. But I can see where Ole might be incensed. We made him an Anderson. He's going to have to turn in his membership card in the Norwegian Anderson Society. <laughs> That's right. But, it, but you know, again, we've mentioned Flair has had a lot of medical problems. And a lot of it was... You know, as we mentioned, he said alcohol-related, but it tears your in, your insides up. You know, and a, a, a very important part, I don't know if you know this, Brian, or not. I don't know if you've ever studied this in school, but a very important part of your good health and your continued successful life is having a stomach. Did you know that? I believe that's a requirement, yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, if, if most people, if they have to have their stomach and intestines and all their internal organs taken out they don't fare too well after that it's it's a a slow but steady downhill slide after that so you got to take care 
of your stomach. I have a gut feeling about my gut. It needs taken care of. Because do you know that your GI tract is in your gut? And that's, that's actually not anything to do with the Army or infantry. Because at first, when I heard about my GI tract, I thought it would involve marching. Apparently, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't. Because I don't know why that one got me. <laughs> it, it, but it did, and I'll, I'll remind you later. But the thing is, your GI tract processes all this shit, literally. And so you got to keep it working and operating. And, and the probiotics and the prebiotics, along with the symbiotics, are, are what you need for good gut health, for ensuring thorough digestion, ensuring delivery to the colon. And as we talked about, colon delivery is sweeping the nation. People, especially when the pandemic started, instantly people started becoming colon deliverers. And now they're delivering to colons across the country. But you got to make sure if you take a probiotic and a prebiotic, that it goes all the way to the colon. And that's what the folks at Seed can do for you. S-E-E-D, Seed. How else would you spell it? Because you may not know this, but not all probiotics are created equal. The daily symbiotic from Seed is a broad-spectrum two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic with a proprietary formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages. They have sat down and studied these probiotics and how big of a strain they can be on you, and they've determined that these are not too big of a strain because you don't want to strain yourself. My mother always used to say, don't strain your milk, Jimmy. If I tried to lift something, you'll strain your milk. Well, seed won't let you strain your milk. It supports benefits in and beyond the gut. It will support ease of bloating, healthy regularity, and ease of evacuation. See, it's all part of getting all that bad shit out and moving the good shit in. So if you're bloated, that means you're full of shit. And if you don't have healthy regularity, that means you're not regularly expunging the shit that you're full of. In some cases, I know people are so full of shit, they can get rid of it every day out of their mouth, and they're still full of it. And also the ease of evacuation. Folks, when you get on seed, this broad-spectrum two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic, you will be evacuating all over the place. You will evacuate morning, evening, and night. Under control you, whenever you're ready to go and evacuate. Yes, well, I would make appointments ahead of time if I were you, because you're going to need them. Uh, but it will be easy for you to evacuate. As a matter of fact, the whole place will be empty. I mean, there'll be tumbleweeds down there rolling, just rolling across. It'll be and the wind whistling because there'll be nothing there to stop it. It's going to be evacuated. Ugh. And it also supports your gut barrier. That's a barrier between your gut and the outside world that wants to get in and do horrible things to it. It'll support your skin health. That with this, you have this seed probiotic and prebiotic. A lot of people have had a problem. Uh, in modern times with their skin falling off. And that won't happen with this. It'll stay right on you where it belongs. It'll it promote your heart health and micronutrient synthesis. And I can't, let me say this again, folks, micronutrient synthesis. I can't stress this enough. Micronutrient synthesis. 
It's all part of Seed. Start a healthy new habit today. Visit seed.com slash drive. Use the code drive to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's Daily Symbiotic. You will look better, you'll feel better, you'll eat better, and you'll shit better, especially if you're already full of it, with Seed's Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash drive. 20% off. 20% off your next dump, courtesy of Seed and us here at the program. All right, well, before we hop over to the other side of the promotional war and check out AEW, Brian, what's going on in the world of the Arcadian Vanguard Network this fine week? Another action-packed week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network this fine week. Get information about all the shows on Twitter, at Super Podcasts, or on do you, Facebook. Do you have sludge in your ducks this fine week? No, but we promise the best dreck you can get. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Super Podcast. Duck Drek. A few notes before we get the duck out of here. See, I'll hit you with that again. This week on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a big episode. The boys talk with Dr. D, David Schultz. Hear that today. Once again, BowdrinPod.com. Or look for Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Also want to make mention... Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon, another big episode this week. Brian's guest, Rob Van Dam. Hear RVD with Brian Solomon today at suawpod.com or look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast. Oh, God. The Mothership! You know, my house guests right now are wondering what the hell just happened. (laughs) But at least I wasn't on the intercom like I was earlier. (laughs) Opening week Star Wars is recorded. It is edited. We're just uh, about to put it up. So stay tuned. The next day or so, it's going to be up four hours or so, give or take, with me and several of the stars of the Super Podcast talking baseball and then eventually even talking wrestling. 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. More episodes in production. The Mothership! Oh, goddamn you. Hold on. I feel like Stone Cold now. Yeah. When the glass breaks, it's your ass. But they don't have glass breaking in AEW to signify that the people should scream and yell and jump up to their feet and throw the babies in the air. They hit the opening strains of... Like Mussolini to keep the demo that Big Bang ratings really great. <laughs> and so they got punk out right at the top of the program to try to keep all those people wondering. We just watched this apparently highly popular sitcom, and now we're going to go, what the fuck is this? They were in New Orleans at the UNO Lakefront Arena, scene of some of my greatest triumphs. Did you recognize it? Does it look, from a television point of view, does it look like the arena you remember? Well, we never did TV there. I know, so, but when but you yeah, see it on TV. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice place. It, it's probably, as I recall, seats about 8,000-ish or thereabouts. It's right. It's, they call it the Lakefront Arena because it's on the UNO Lakefront Arena. It's uh, right beside a big lake. 
And it's on the campus of the University of New Orleans, so a really creative name for it. But it's beautiful. And that's a building that Watts started running, I think, when we were there in 84, because the original building for wrestling for low those many years, the Dog's House, the downtown municipal auditorium in downtown New Orleans. And that was the primary location for the weekly wrestling matches from not only Mid-South, but before Mid-South when McGurk was the promoter and then years before that, etc. It was an old building, historic. It was a it was a double-sided type auditorium where you could open up one side, which they did usually for the matches that were weekly on Monday nights in New Orleans, and it seated about 4,000, 5,000 people. But if you opened up the other side, the curtain down the middle, there was a big stage and shit, but you could then double the size of the building. And they only opened up the whole thing once when when we were there, and that was when my hair was at stake. And we did we if they'd have just kept the half open, we'd have been fine. But they opened it up and it didn't look too good because that was after dog had left. Nothing was gonna save it. Anyway, the downtown municipal auditorium was the regular building, and in the old days, they would go over to the St. Bernard Civic Center, not named after a dog, but the actual saint. It was a, a, a St. Bernard Parish in Louisiana is right across the, not the causeway, but it's, it's, it's out east of, of regular New Orleans. And when the downtown auditorium wasn't available, they would go out there sometimes. That was a little building that seated 2,500 people. They didn't like to make a habit of going there. But the UNO Lakefront Arena, and I'm going to tell you why I'm going into so much detail in a minute. The Lakefront Arena was in a completely different area, whereas the downtown auditorium was obviously downtown. St. Bernard Civic Center was way out of town to the east side for the people that lived out in the suburbs. The Lakefront Arena drew a better class of people, better dressed possibly from a more affluent part of New Orleans, because to get there, you had really needed a car. The downtown auditorium, the buses, and you could walk. So the downtown building was heavily African-American, which is one of the reasons why Dog was God there. The St. Bernard Civic Center was more the Cajuns and the more lower income fucking um how should we say this nicely lower income people out in that part of new orleans and then the uno lakefront got a completely different crowd including college kids and younger people and the only time that all those people would ever meet was at the superdome four times a year so you drew different crowds but uh this was the lakefront, and they better be glad, because I guarantee I know the Bucks weren't on this show, but some of the guys on the AEW roster, if they'd have gone to the municipal auditorium in downtown New Orleans, the crowd would have stolen their wallets. So, thankfully, they were out in a good part of town. I know I've said in the past that CM Punk is approaching a magician, and this was the ultimate test. I'm like, what? How is this going to work? CM Punk against... What is Penthouse's new name now instead of Penthouse uh, Zero Calorie whatever? He's Penthouse Obscure. Obscuro. Obs well, Obscuro. He, he's, 
He's dark. He's coming out behind a tombstone or from behind a tombstone. His manager, Alex, has turned into a Sammy Terry cosplayer for all of the WTTV Channel 4 fans from 30, 40 years ago. You'll so remember good. Sammy Terry. He was so good in his role. And now I thought it was a one night thing. And now it's been a couple months of this and it's not going away. And, it's and he's terrible. swinging a thing. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. So I'm figuring this is going to be a clash of styles. Can punk do it? Because let's face it, a, a penthouse for, he's just not going to be very good at working with a, a worker. It, his gimmick is posing it's gestures. There's no facials because of the mask. A lot of the flips and things that don't make a lot of sense, but let's see what punk can do here. And the crowd was so hot at the beginning that they could milk the dueling chance. And for some reason, Penthouse had his, his supporters there. But they did the shove, shove, pie face, and then they got into the trading the chops, and at least it wasn't, we're going to see that later on, at least it wasn't Samoa Joe and Suzuki. They were chopping each other like they were trying to hit each other and knock each other down against the other's will. You know what I'm saying? And did you see Punk's body language when he's getting chopped? He's flying back all the way around with it. He's selling it. It's it, He's reacting to it. Instead of just, they just standing there trading on purpose. So they had a match. It made sense. Um, there wasn't as much of the Lucha Brothers Lucha as normal, which was a definite benefit. There was one thing, and actually, I don't even need to, I'm not trying to pull experience or veteranism on CM Punk, but he should have known, and it worked out, it didn't work, and maybe he won't do this anymore. But they went to a break when they came back from the break. The one thing I didn't like about the match, and at least he saved it and it became a teaching moment. They're both fighting on the turnbuckles and then both of them stand up together on the top rope. And I've said this a million times. I don't care who you are, how good you are, how you do it. It doesn't matter. There is no way to suspend disbelief. And it looks ridiculous in the context of a contest. When both guys stand up with both feet on the top rope and you can't tell me that, they, that they're not cooperating. And you can't tell me that the guy, that the second guy to go up to the top is not just stepping up on purpose and being pulled somehow. It doesn't work. But they tried to do it so that Punk could give a Hurricane Rana off the top rope to Penthouse but he slipped and they both fell. And like I said, I'm not trying to pull veteranness on CM Punk. Everybody makes mistakes. And I'm not talking about the bump. I'm talking about the idea of doing it to begin with. It wasn't going to look good to begin with because it was going to look obvious cooperation. And then it fucked up and it, and it, it could have been bad. But... Hopefully, he'll not do that anymore. Do you know how he saved this from being worse? Do you know how, how CM Punk 
how he responded to this to save it from getting the you fucked up chant, which I think came out later on in the night. I do. And let me just apologize for Swami going nuts at the UPS man in the background. (laughs) I think I do. And to me, it was so good. It made me think that maybe it wasn't a flub, but CM Punk selling of his leg. Exactly. But it, it wasn't, he wasn't trying to sell to make you think it wasn't a flub. He knew it looked like a flub. It looked exactly like what it was. They both fell off the top rope. But if two green guys had done that, and then they jumped right back up and started trying to do something else, that would have given the perfect opportunity for the fans to start chanting, you fucked up, you fucked up. Because that's what they do, right? To almost anybody. Mother Teresa, you fucked up! But as soon as Punk landed, he started selling his leg, not his back like he took a bump or his head like he took, but he started selling his knee. And then the people knew, well, they, that was a fuck up. And now he's holding his knee and he's keeping selling it. And he's selling it for a while. Now they're worried that their beloved CM Punk has fucked himself up. So they're not going to fucking put the boots to him by going, you fucked up while you're down there needing knee surgery. They started worrying about him instead of taking the opportunity to be wise asses. And then he kept selling the leg, even when Penthouse comes back to him. Then, boom, 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 he fights back. And by the time that he realizes, okay, we've got him out of that point where they're not going to do that, then he sets Penthouse up on the top rope. And hits the quick Hurricane Rana just so he can do it, and then gives him a knee in the corner, goes for his finish, but the leg buckles. So now they're back into the match, and now the people are back into the match. If they had done anything else besides him selling like he had accidentally fucked himself up and they were worried, that would have left the opportunity open for the people to get on him and kill the thing even worse. On the sperm of the moment, and then you see... Because now Penthouse is confused. What are we doing? So there's a brief moment where there's a a short conference where Punk gets him back on the page. And they're back into the match. And then boom, boom, boom. And then basically Punk comes back a little bit, calls for the go to sleep. Penthouse blocks it. Enzigiri roll-ups back and forth. Punk comes out, hits his finish one time, go to sleep, one, two, three. It wasn't Punk's best match. I think he did all he could with the style limitations of his opponent, but it was a brilliant save on that flub because that's the first major fuck-up he's really done on television. It was something that, if they hadn't tried to do that, the match would have been just as good and nobody would have missed it. So for people who say I never criticized Punk, there you go. What'd you think? I really liked it. I didn't think it was a flub. I thought it was part of the story of the match for two reasons. One, Punk tells really good stories in his match, and that really became the story of the match was the leg. And two, he worships Bret Hart like all of us smart people do. And Bret (laughs) was the master of creating an injury during the match and selling it throughout the match. I really liked it. I didn't think the flub, if it was a flub, I didn't think it took away from the match because they they went back to it. And if it created the knee injury story, I thought that was the best thing about the match was Punk selling of the knee. Even when the referee was checking on him on the ground, I wasn't sure what was going I wasn't sure if he was hurt or not. 
Well, so I then, liked I, it. then I won't even spoil for you how you could go back and determine for yourself that that knee was not injured. <laughs> but, but that again, that's how good a worker punk is and how he thinks on the fly because we had con- differing opinions on whether that was a flub or a flub or not. CM Punk has been in AEW now for a while. And he still gets these monster pops. Did you hear that crowd when he came out? Yes. And I mean, this this crowd, they were hot. They haven't had wrestling down there in a while in New Orleans. Um, uh, well, we saw what could cool them down, but they were certainly hot for CM Punk. Well, yes. Yeah. You know, they were hot at the start. <laughs> they, they, as a matter of fact, think about the, the range. In two hours, they took this from one of the hottest wrestling crowds that you'll see on television dueling chance before the opening match had locked up. And by the end, the same crowd is doing the boo, not boo. We hate you a heel boo. We don't like what we're seeing and we want you to stop it in two hours. Interesting. Um, I guess we're going to have to put up with the Jericho Appreciation Society a while longer. They landed in New Orleans on a plane and come out and say that's how sports entertainers travel. So now, (laughs) when you think about the psychology of this, this is insane. The WWE has Cody Rhodes being a babyface by saying the words belt and wrestler. and. The AEW has Jericho being a heel by saying sports entertainment that was started by the company that's now making the baby face. That, do you see where I'm going with this? What the fuck? Yeah. So they're at the plane. They start the promo, and there's Kingston and Santana and Ortiz in a little midsize rental car hooting at them and they drive off and there's 2.0 or whatever their new names are mac daddy daddy mac mac and <laughs> d'angelo de niro i don't know what I think you're thinking of crisscross <laughs> Chris, there you go daddy mac and mac daddy how do you know that i don't know <laughs> i don't even know I watched TV once 30 years ago and it scarred me. I don't know. Um, But they're laying behind the car as the car drives off. They were hidden laying there on the, so they've been attacked and beaten up on the tarmac. This airplane just landed, flew in 20,000 feet over their head, flew in, landed on that tarmac, did not see that rental car there with two of their friends laying in a heap behind it. So the preposterosity is heavy in this one. And then we go to the tag team title match and Bobby Fish and Kyle O'Reilly against Jungle Boy and Dino Douche. Jungle Boy and Dino, of course, are the world tag team champions of AEW. Has there ever been a time in any major wrestling promotion where the world tag team championship was on the at least fifth best team in the company? I don't want to say there hasn't been because there have been some really awful teams in WWE that had the world tag titles while there were other talented teams in the roster. So maybe, but not often. FTR, Fish and O'Reilly themselves, Santana and Ortiz, Danielson and Moxley, for fuck's sake, at least they're stars. Darby Allen and Sting, the Gun Club is a better tag team. The Acclaimed. The Acclaimed. Uh, 
Jungle Boys can be fine. The Lizard is rotten and irredeemable, as we've noticed. But I will break a few things down here in this match because this this was what started the downhill slide to me, and then MJF brought it back, and then it was in free fall. But Fish and O'Reilly were having those great tag team matches in NXT. Fish and O'Reilly don't have a lot of pull here in this company, I'm sure, uh, to be able to jerk a knot in anybody's tail and say, no, we're going to do things our way. It doesn't work for us, brother. But they're almost like Play-Doh. Like some of these other guys, they absorb the goodness or the badness of their opponents. They were having excellent tag team matches, and they're both excellent wrestlers, and we praised them in singles matches, and O'Reilly, and the different style he has, and the shoot kind of stuff that he incorporates. But they get in the ring with these fucking guys, or any of these indie-rific clowns, and I've about given up on Jungle Boy, because he had a lot of potential to me, but... He's never going to get any better like this, and he does the same shit. But uh, this match was a fucking mess to me. At worst, they they got a little steam on Jungle Boy, or I'm sorry, on Dino at the start, so Jungle Boy could get a tag, and the the lizard gave him the worst hot tag ever. He's flat-footed, stumbling across the ring, and one of the heels tripped him. <laughs> But since he's seven feet tall, he just leaned over and tagged Jungle Boy. Like slapping him in the face with a cow pie tag. Here, you tag it. So then Jungle Boy does a comeback, which ends with Dino doing a backflip off the apron of the ring onto the heels on the floor, because he's got to do a backflip. And then Jungle Boy runs and does a flip over the top rope at Fish, but Fish wasn't even looking at him sees him out of the corner of his eye, goes to try to catch him, but Jungle Boy had already jumped nowhere near Fish and just and dropped beside of him, and they both fell down. That was the break spot. So let's say Jungle Boy knows the break spot is me diving on Bobby Fish. Does that mean that you're supposed to just run toward the motherfucker, jump over the top rope head first, and hope when he's not even looking at you? So then after the break, Jungle Boy tags Dino, and Dino makes a comeback and does the same stuff as always, and then double choke slams both of the heels, and it looked impressive as hell. And instead of double choke slam with authority and cover one, he turns around and does a backflip on one of them, standing backflip to make the cover. Gets a two count. You know, I was going to say the lizard ought to spend two years in solitary confinement with Mike Mondo and he might learn something, but poor Mondo, the, the, the price he would pay. The heels took back over, but then the baby faces did some shit. It, it, Jungle Boy and Dino did a big double team where Dino gets the sidewalk slam and Jungle Boy comes off the top with the elbow. That looked nice. Nice teamwork move. Only got a two count. But then after that, did you notice this, Brian? This is what was killing me. After that double team move, Dino rolls out onto the floor. They've just done an offensive move, right? He rolls out on the floor and disappears for no reason. Jungle Boy and Fish are in there doing a spot. And then O'Reilly comes in and gets on Jungle Boy and hits his suplex, and they do double teams to Jungle Boy. 
Luchasaurus is not even back on the apron of the ring yet, and he rolled out after doing an offensive move, but he disappears selling on the floor so that the the heels can take advantage of his partner. And then, as they get on him, then he comes back in, and they get in a four-way clusterfuck and do some kind of superplex. Kyle has a front face lock on the lizard, but fish superplexes somebody over the top of them. And Dino made the save by slamming O'Reilly on top of the pile. I don't know what the fuck was going on. All four of them were in the ring together forever in front. Cause it was the corpse referee, Rick Knox, the worst ever in history of wrestling. They did one move after another. And then jungle boy beat Bobby fish. It started out blah and got rotten. And then, so now Fish and O'Reilly have yet to win one tag team match on this television to go along with, well, Cole's won a match now. Cole beat somebody. I can't remember who. I don't think they've won anything. They get beat by these fucking two. But then Kyle O'Reilly comes with a chair from behind and whacks the baby faces and they jump out of the ring. But FTR's music plays. And they come down and start having a shoving match with O'Reilly and Fish. So apparently FTR get to fight the losers of that. I, what the fuck is going on here? Did you like any of this? Well, let me just answer your question. You said Adam Cole beat someone recently. I think he beat Jay Lethal on TV recently. That, well, that's right. Yes. Because everyone beat Jay Lethal on TV yeah, leading, up to, everyone. leading up to whatever he Join did. The the club. Punish wrestling at the end of the show. But um, I wasn't crazy about this. I'm not a fan of the Jurassic Express. And Red Dragon, you know, I'm sorry. When they come out, I look at Kyle O'Reilly. I'm like, he should be separate from Bobby Fish, separate from, because they've done it for a while, separate from Adam Cole. He should be a guy they're grooming for a top spot. But I guess maybe that's not what he wants. These people actually think that Wheeler Yuta can be a potential world champion, but O'Reilly's just nothing to write home about. FTR got a big, big pop coming yeah. out and there is thunder in the background ladies and gentlemen i'm not talking <laughs> about a bad it. wcw show um ftr got a big pop and they've turned themselves babyface by just being the best tag team and people knowing they weren't being used right now they're being used right and people were people were over the moon about it so that's something to watch like i said last time they're having a moment and the fans are along with them for the ride well, speaking of taking a ride, let's take a ride on the MJF Express because thankfully he saved this program. This is one of the best five minutes of wrestling business I've seen in a long time. And with one notable detail issue that I don't know why anybody couldn't have seen this and it wasn't the talent in the ring's fault, but everything else, MJF is going to wrestle Captain Sean Dean. Uh, who Sean Dean was in camouflage when he was introduced. He's already on AEW television, so he's already invisible. He doesn't need to be camouflaged. But single match, we know what's been going on with Wardlow. He's banned from the building, but he's trying to come in and and harass and nettle and persecute MJF and etc. But th from the start of this thing, just to make it different, this didn't have anything to do necessarily with the angle, but he's such a brilliant young man. Do you know who MJF stole the jacket deal from? 
No, who did that? J.J. Dillon. And I've got to say, uh, he did it better, but only because this was television and MJF had to hurry. And Tony Schiavone almost blew it, but not quite. Because he almost jumped the gun when he said, look at this idiot, he can't get the jacket off. He almost blew it, but it was it was there where it could be taken either way. But the deal is, if you see it in its full-fledged entirety without having the TV limitations, it's a warm-up jacket with a zipper. J.J. would get the introductions. You know, the, the whoever his opponent was would go to the corner. He'd turn around and go to the corner, and he'd go to pull the zipper down. And it wouldn't work. And he would do the deal like this where he didn't want anybody to see it. And he would milk it longer, as I said, because there wasn't time limitations. But he would be doing what you would do if you really had a fucking zipper that wouldn't work and a bunch of people were about to laugh at you. He would he would yell at the referee, hey, referee, uh, check his tights or whatever. And then he'd turn the back so the opponent couldn't see it and point at it. And he'd jerk a couple of times at the zipper and people at ringside would start noticing and he'd get that look on his face down at it like god damn it and he'd look to see if anybody was noticing well him looking to see if anybody was noticing would make other people notice and then he'd yank it a couple more times then the referee would come over and say come on let's come out take the jacket off <clears throat> and then jj'd be like just, just one second just one second and he'd try again now everybody in the building's picking up on it people are starting to point and now the referee's looking around the uh, JJ's shoulder and he's, and the opponent is starting to look and he's kind of peeking over and he's starting to laugh. And now when the opponent points to the jacket and asks the referee, can he not shakes his head, right? The referee shakes his head back. And now everybody in the building knows that JJ can't get his fucking zipper down. And now since everybody's getting on him, he's just hauling off and jerking it and fucking cussing and stomping his foot and trying to pull it and the opponent gets a little closer and a little closer and the referee goes over and tries to help him and right as the guy gets close enough jj reaches right over the referee and punches the guy right in the fucking eye and then immediately pulls the zipper down and throws the jacket off it's a four or five minute deal but for house shows but it was fucking great and i loved seeing it again and MJF is looking great physically, right? He's just really, he's tan and he's hes in shape. He's got his shit together. And he starts kicking the shit out of old Sean. But then as soon as it starts, there's a camera in back that pops up on the screen. And the camera is running up on security guys that are laying on the floor, motionless, and one of them has no shirt on. Now... This is the detail I was talking about. If the cameraman knows to run from a place to go up there, how does he know, Brian? I don't know how he knows. Well, he knows if they've heard some commotion or maybe somebody has said, hey, there's a problem back there. But here's the thing. When you run up, if nobody is checking on these people, who are laying there motionless, apparently unconscious. Is there a fucking, is there a gas leak? Are we all in danger? What's happened to them? Would the camera zoom up on them and just shoot them? Or if the cameraman was the only person that saw that these guys were down, 
would he be just shooting it or would he be screaming, hey, get somebody? Or wouldn't there be a person or two like the not the security, they're the ones laying there, but a doctor, a random referee, a backstage popcorn salesman, somebody already checking on them to determine that they're not fucking dead. That's the off-putting visual. If there's somebody in charge of it, somebody already has found these people and is evaluating their condition, called 911, whatever, then the cameraman can shoot it. But if the cameraman's first one to come up, he needs to put the camera down and check and see if they're breathing first. A little thing, I know, but it's the picture you're painting. There's details in the Mona Lisa. But besides that, MJF freaks out, sees this, goes back to Dean, throws him out on the floor, runs him into the barricade, exults in the fans' booze there at the railing, and Wardlow, in a security shirt and a COVID mask, walks up behind him and takes the shit off. And MJF, holy shit, and fucking Wardlow goes after MJF and it starts wiping out a dozen security guys that are just coming and running as fa- endlessly. It looked like the clown car at the goddamn Ringling Brothers, except it's security guys coming out in a steady stream nonstop. And he wipes a bunch of them out, but finally 15 of them stop him. Just sheer numbers and he's immobilized in this mass of humanity. But the referee is counting MJF. And MJF's run back to the stage, so he gets on the microphone and says, Bryce Rimsburg, whatever Tony Khan's paying you, I'll triple it if you don't count me out. <laughs> and Rimsburg looks back and forth, and 10! Oh, motherfucker! And Dean wins by count out. And the people went berserk, and Wardlow is over. This is over. When When... When you get reactions like this and you look like that and you're coming in and laying waste to people and the babies are going in the air, that's fucking over. They want to see this. They want to see Wardlow get their hand, get his hands on MJF. They want to see this kind of shit that where he throws people away because he's a giant fucking behemoth. It was a wrestling angle. And MJF then was in the back screaming and or uh, MJF was arguing with the referee, rather, in the ring while Wardlow was going crazy in the back, screaming, I'm going to get out of this contract. This was a wrestling angle. You want to see these two get a hold of each other, or specifically Wardlow get a hold of MJF, more now than you did last week. That's a wrestling angle. What'd you think? Oh, I loved it. This was (laughs) the end of the good portion of the show, but this was Mm -hmm. the highlight of the show. Hey, to be repetitive, it's every MJF segment. We can go back now to the Pillman feud. It's every MJF segment. It's logical. Reminds me of professional wrestling because it is professional wrestling. And you said Wardlow's over. It's interesting. This is all being done the traditional way. These are young guys. They have a young flair. They have young things. I'm not that old, much older now. I don't know why I'm using young so much. These are younger (laughs) guys doing new things. and. It's getting over in the traditional way. Wardlow seems to be much more over than their world heavyweight champion is. And he's getting a different kind of chant than the world heavyweight champion would get. I don't know. I think they've got something. 
with Wardlow, and I think it's not just because he's a big guy and he looks, you know, like a monster and he could do some stuff in the ring. It's also because of the way this has been built up. This has all been done other than the early teases, which didn't make much sense. Way back at the start, you're talking about. Yeah, but the stuff yeah, that, the last several that weeks. Way too early. With Wardlow trying to get to MJF, I've really enjoyed this. It's really, it's enjoyable. I guess that's the thing. You could sit back and watch it like a fan. It's really enjoyable. And even Spears, give him credit. I thought he was good here. He didn't bother me at all. And I thought him yeah. working with MJF, it worked. It made the jacket thing work and him being there. The facial expressions from him and MJF after Wardlow like, threatened them was great. Because they both know like it's, it's on. They know the guy. I really like this. This is great. Well, but as you mentioned, this was the beginning of the end. Um, the trios match was next. Or uh, Tony Schiavone's even saying trios now. He'll say anything you tell him to say. Just he could say six-man tag team match. Is anybody going to fire him? Uh, Chris Jericho, Danny Garcia, The Rock's ex-wife, and Jake Hager against Eddie Kingston, Santana, and Ortiz with that preposterous angle with the airport at the start being the impetus behind this thing. And I just... The whole... Jericho now, the sports entertainment thing and the whole group of jobbers so that it can be all genuflecting about him and combined with he's supposed to be a heel, but yet he shamelessly panders for him to sing the song and this whole mess. I was not completely very interested in the match, but Jericho basically hit Kingston with a baseball bat and Garcia pinned him. But... Then they do an afterbirth. Of course, they have to, because it's AEW and every match has one. This is more Chris Jericho than AEW. This is a Chris Jericho thing. It's happened too well, many times with the Chris Jericho segments. This is the blame goes on Chris Jericho because of all the people doing fake, phony looking shit. Jericho's was the worst, and I don't know what's happened. But they then, the heels after the match, turn around and jump on Kingston. He's in there by himself. The other two have been dispatched. And Jericho starts, I quote, throwing, unquote, quote, punches, unquote, towards the direction of Kingston's head without even a fist clenched and nothing behind him. And there's a camera close-up, so you can see this. And then here comes 2.0 or whatever their crisscross is what we'll call them now, I guess. They're in street clothes. They're getting heat. Garcia comes in with the baseball bat, and while Kingston's laying there trying to figure out what to sell or how to sell this shit, Garcia is giving Kingston rib noogies with the bat, just puts the butt of the bat in his, in his ribs and starts turning it back and forth. He's got a baseball bat in his hands, and he's gouging the guy's ribs. And then Jericho says, oh, no, this is the way you do it, and grabs the bat and hits Kingston three times with the fakest looking. He's not touching him. One of them Kingston didn't even react to because he didn't see it coming and didn't feel it. Go back. I dare everybody. If you're an AEW hater, if you're an AEW fan, if you're an AEW wrestler, Go back and look at the heels heat in this segment and tell me that this did not look like the fakest horse shit that you've ever seen in your life. And everybody involved 
should be ashamed, including Jericho, of his group's performance. And while this heat was going on where they were hitting him with shit that some of it wasn't anywhere near him, no bell, no referees, nobody trying to stop it, and the work looked phony as fuck. This was embarrassing. And that's all I got to say about that. Do you have any follow-up? I have two thoughts. One, if you remember a few weeks ago, there was the angle where the inner circle, were, or the, um, whatever, the, the Japs, whatever they are. What are they? The they? Jass. The, the Jass. jass. Well, uh, they, uh, they the were Jewish looking, American Princess Society. That's exactly the who they are. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. Um, they were looking behind curtains. They were looking all over for Kingston and them, and then Kingston and them came out. And beat down Jericho and his crew finally. And then in the same angle, Jericho and his crew got their comeback and left them laying and it went on for a while. The beatdown went on for a long time here. And it was bad and it's ridiculous. And the people want to see Kingston do something. They don't want to just see him get his ass kicked by Jericho. And if Jericho comes out of this like the MJF feud where he wins in the end, you know the rib was on. Secondly, did you ever see the movie Kingpin? Yes. The bowling movie? Yes. Do you remember Big Earn, the Bill Murray character, the way his hair was flopping yes, around? Yeah. What the hell's going on with Jericho's hair or weave or whatever the hell it is? It looks so unnatural that I watch him now and I can't take my eyes off his hair. It's like Stan Lane's wig. I said it before with extensions. <laughs> it looks so bizarre. It's all I can focus on now during these matches is that that ridiculous thing on his head, whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> If he did that just to be a heel, maybe, hey, listen, Jericho is the kind of guy, maybe he was drinking vodka in a hotel room, he was watching Kingpin, he goes, you know what, I'm going to have my hair look ridiculous like that. People will think I'm going bald. Maybe that was it, but I, that was all I could focus on. Uh, well, here's an observation. By the way, MJF is pissed and has signed Wardlow to fight the Butcher in the near future. It could have, at least it would, if it had been the Baker... We know he could go up for the power bomb. I'm afraid Wardlow might not be able to get the butcher's big ass up. But, you know, go ahead. Can I just say one thing? And this is going to sound nuts, and I've thought about it a few times recently. I think the butcher is kind of a missed, not a missed opportunity, but just been misused. First of all, tying him with the blade has dragged him down because the blade. And the bunny. Yeah. And quite frankly, I don't think people care about that. And I think they've been treated like jobbers for a long time. But the other thing is, he actually has size. He looks like he's in better shape now. It's a man who could actually use a monocle. That's a, <laughs> that's a skill. That's a talent. You could, they got rid of the monocle, though. They got rid of the monocle. It's the best part of his whole act. But it's a guy who's, he looks like a wrestler. You know what I mean? Like if, I'm sure if you <laughs> went into a store and he was there, you'd be like, that guy looks like he could be a wrestler. There could have been more to be done with him. So we'll see uh, next week what it is. But it goes back to the roots, because originally, didn't they pop out of the ring to attack Cody Rhodes at the behest of MJF? Yes, that's right. Well, and then he paid off whoever he paid off there, MJF. It's did. been a lot of payoffs in AEW, if yeah. you really think about it. And you see them on camera to make sure you know that they're happening. But here's the random observation I was going to make. Uh, Alex Marvez, Officer Bar Brady is the only interviewer ever in the history of professional wrestling who can come off phony without even speaking one word. 
He turns and holds the microphone phony like no human ever would. He's so uncomfortable on television. I wonder if he shits himself every time the red light comes on. He looks like he's being stood up against a fucking wall. You know what? The other day, I forget what it was. There was some clip I wanted to see from like way back at the beginning of AEW. There was something I was looking for. And it was when Marvez was still on commentary. And I forgot about that. I did too. You, you think he's bad doing this? Go back and listen to any of that. Wow. You can remember why that was one of the first big takeaways from AEW. People yeah. forget that now. One of the first big takeaways from anyone's exposure to AEW was they got to get Marvez out of the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I just was reminded of that the other day. Well, next up on this journey through hysteria, and don't worry, folks, we're going to finish strong here. Just real quick, Marina Shafir against Sky Blue. And I didn't remember ever seeing Marina Shafir really wrestle. Maybe she was in, in the developmental program in WWE for a while. Maybe we've seen him. I don't know. But I thought, okay, I'll see what's going on here. Um, nothing went on here. She, uh, Shafir has a good mean face and she's got a legit background but between the the other girl being green instead of blue and the fact that apparently Shafir was told to sell nothing but also do nothing they tried to do something and then Sky Blue tapped out but there was nothing happened in this match really and not in a not in a planned way like we're going to get more out of less, but just in, like, nothing happened. Well, it was the first match Marina Shafir's had on TV. They've shown a few promo videos of her. She's been talked about. Sky Blue is obviously young, so we'll see what kind of future she has, but the people seem to like her. Marina, I just said you would it you was, would have thought she could have done like a body slam or anything. <laughs> they well, just the other thing you, there a lot. You would have thought if you're gonna play up the idea that she's a mixed martial artist and she's gonna win with an MMA type maneuver, you would think they would have her do that much more quickly than they did. It went a little wild. The other thing I think that was really the story was Jade watching at the monitor. While her baddie section now includes Red Velvet and Kiara Hogan. So now she's doing better than Brandy with heels. You, I mean, just have to say. <laughs> but now the baddie section, which really hasn't been defined, includes some of the wrestlers, uh, including one who actually, now I think by Red Velvet was Jade Cargill's big feud early on. So I can't explain Wait, that's right. Else. Wait a minute. So now if you can't beat him, join him. I guess so. Because now she's in the group. It's uh, seat fillers. Maybe they're just high-priced seat fillers. Okay, here's here's some malpractice. We're going to talk about this for a second. Powerhouse Hobbs and Ricky Starks against Swerve Strickland and Keith Lee. Okay, we have had a variety of good things to say about Hobbs, about Starks, to a lesser extent Keith Lee. I'm waiting for Swerve to grow on me. But Starks and Hobbs are looking great. Keith Lee is nearing Vader size. He's getting bigger and, and slower, and it seems like... Did you hear Jim Ross knock him because he was so busy 
milking the crowd for his chant that he the match was starting and he hadn't even taken his jacket off yet. And JR's like, well, if I was Swerve, I believe I'd be concerned that my partner hasn't even taken his ring jacket off yet. He wouldn't pay any attention. So anyway, Hobbs and Keith Lee faced off one time earlier, and Keith Lee just palmed Hobbs's head and shit-canned him through the ropes. Remember that? They'd done something to Starks. Hobbs comes in. Keith Lee turns around, and there's Hobbs and Keith Lee face-to-face. And Lee just palms his head, shit-cans him to the floor, then grabs Starks and awkwardly shit-cans him and throws him from the wrong side anyways, turning him around to the wrong side, and then tags Swerve. And the heels had to stand there on the floor for 15 full seconds by a 1,001-1,002 count, while in slow motion, Swerve got up on the top rope and then jumped off and pushed off and backflipped off Keith Lee's chest onto the waiting heels who stood there watching the whole goddamn thing. And you keep saying heels. It was Starks' hometown. He got a monster pop. They were baby well, faces. Well, yeah. well, well, yeah. Oh, and that's another thing. Yes, the, the heels were the the uh, popular team with all the people and the baby faces. So here you've got two brand new baby faces that just came in a company. So the thing to do is put them against a heel in the heels hometown so that they will make sure to cheer for the heel. <laughs> That's what they did with the, that was the problem with the Patriot in Nova Scotia. You idiots. He's brand new. He can't. He doesn't have enough in the bank with the people yet for them to see an arena full of people booing him on national television. So anyway, after that spot, um, somebody please, if you talk to Will Hobbs, tell him don't ever let people shit in his fucking face like that. I don't care if it's Keith Lee or anybody else. Just reach out and palm his head and fling him from the ring like a fucking piece of shit. I got hot. Then they go to the break. Then coming back, all the heels heat was in the break. Starks and Hobbs, I mean. When they came back, there were horrible simultaneous cold tags to Lee and Starks where the partners were just laying in their respective corners, reaching up and tagging their... And then Keith Lee sold more for Ricky Starks than he did for Hobbs through the whole thing. It was a sloppy match that made little sense. They treated Hobbs like a flunky. That's what I wrote. And then Swerve tosses Starks into the ring after he's done some kind of move. Did you catch this one? So imagine this. Hobbs is on the apron in his corner. Keith Lee's on the apron in his corner. Swerve throws Ricky Starks in the ring. Swerve gets up on the apron in the heel corner with Hobbs. Two feet from him on the other side of the buckle and everybody froze. Hobbs is looking like, why are you right here next to me? <laughs> and fucking Swerve is looking like, why are you here? This is where I have to be to do my move. And the announcers are saying, well, is Swerve trying to lull or con Starks into coming? They didn't know. And then finally... Hobbs goes to grab at him, 
Swerve then after after Hobbs goes to grab at him finally, Swerve jumps down, grabs Hobbs's feet, jerks him to the floor, and then gets back up and vaults over the top rope into a spear by Ricky Starks. So the only place that this idiot could figure out how to do his fancy spot was right in next to Will Hobbs, so Hobbs got shit on again and wiped out to get him out of the way so that this moron couldn't figure out how to do this from any other corner of the ring, or just don't fucking do it. Apparently, Swerve is a complete idiot. So then Starks hit a big false finish and got a two count, and the people popped like crazy because it's home to his hometown. Lee and Swerve did some more shit to, to Starks. Taz came out. And they got in a four-way. Hobbs got posted, got run into the post, and down again. They went into some finish. I can't describe what they were doing. It was all over the place. And finally, Keith Lee goes to hit the ropes in front of Taz, and Taz trips him, and he stumbles into Hobbs' spine buster. One, two, three. And I I didn't have time to go back and watch the whole thing again, nor the inclination. But maybe somebody can and answer me, was that the first actual bump that anybody in this match took for Powerhouse Hobbs was the finish that was assisted by Hobbs's manager? And why did they act like they were confused why Taz was there? He's their manager. Oh, well, that's another thing. Yes, they were cool. Why is Taz come down here? It's Team Taz. I didn't understand that either. But uh, you know what my takeaway from this match was? You remember how Butch Reed, before he died, said that he saw a lot of himself, young self, in Powerhouse Hobbs, and he was a big fan of Powerhouse yeah, Hobbs? that's right, yeah. Okay, I've worked with Butch Reed many times. I've I've been in the locker room with him in the UNO Lakefront Arena, same building. If there had been a match with Butch Reed in it instead of Powerhouse Hobbs and Powerhouse and Butch Reed had been treated in that match like Powerhouse Hobbs was treated by these people, when they got back to the locker room, there would have been a fucking fight that they would have had to call the SWAT team about. He would have told every well, he wouldn't have gone for any of it to begin with. But it let's just say it had of, and he had of, and it happened that way. Every motherfucker on that other team, and probably everybody in the babyface locker room, they'd they'd be looking like the security after Wardlow got finished with them. That was the most disrespect, and I don't even know whether these guys are smart enough to know what they did. But they laid Will Hobbs out in the ring in the middle of New Orleans and said, open your mouth and we're going to piss in it. That's exactly what they did. And Watts would have fined everybody in the match except Hobbs for burying Hobbs, and then he would have fined Hobbs twice as much for allowing himself to get buried without fighting back and doing something about it. So there you go. I can't add too much to that other than from the moment they came out there, Hobbs and Starks are stars, and they're great, and they're good in the ring, getting better, at least in Hobbs' case every day. Not that Starks isn't, but he's been wrestling, I think, a little while longer. Yeah. I just wish they were used better. But these two guys, especially Hobbs, every time you see him, he looks like he's in a little bit better shape, not drastically better. His work gets better. The little bit of promos we've seen have been good. 
I'm not exactly sure what's going on with Keith Lee. I almost thought it was a double turn. It was like, okay. <laughs> I th- in my eyes, Swerve he is the heel. Just accidentally. Yeah, Swerve and Keith Lee are the heels in this match. They're working like heels. But I don't know. I like Hobbs and Starks a lot. Hey, uh, again, I'll tell you what. Um, it, Hobbs is the same as as a lot of these guys. He, Hobbs needs a Heyman. Can you imagine what Heyman could do with Hobbs? You're not talking about, for anyone listening, you're not just saying like as a mouthpiece, like a Taz. You're saying in terms of working as a, with the behind as the scenes. As a coach, as someone to take care of him, as someone to not let people take advantage of him in these matches because he's green and he doesn't know and maybe he's too nice a guy. And either these other guys are so stupid that they don't know how to work with a guy like that to make sure that he doesn't look like a piece of shit or they just don't care. That's a, that he needs somebody looking out for him. Maybe they ought to give him his own producer and make him a because he's certainly deserving of being a project for a future superstardom. They're just going to dick around and not teach him how to take care of himself, and he's not going to get over, and other people are going to get over at his expense. This was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I'm not saying, and somebody's going to say, but he pinned the guy. Fucking hell. That's the problem is that's how deep some of these modern wrestlers and bookers and or promoters think about the fucking business. He looked like shit and was pie-faced, put down, head-palmed, shit-canned, and otherwise made to look like the fourth wheel in this thing through the entire match. And it wasn't even a situation where Oh, we can get some on him because he's getting the pin in the end. No. No, you you have to make him look like a physical threat. When Keith Lee and Powerhouse Hobbs faced off and Keith Lee just reached out and grabbed him by one hand and threw him out of the ring, it was over. You just pull the goddamn curtain back and you see that the Wizard of Oz is a little old man from Kansas. So when you said at the top that there was malpractice, that's the malpractice. Yes, that's it. I I got hot for Hobbs because I think he really could do something, but there's no place to teach these guys anymore. Hobbs, read Mike Mondo's Twitter account. You'll learn more than working with these fucking assholes that are burying you. You know what we hadn't seen on this show so far, Brian? What's that? A fight backstage amongst the girls. (laughs) Now with cake. So they... (laughs) Nyla Rose and Vicky Guerrero have a cake for Thunder Rosa. And of course, everybody thinks that it's going to go in Thunder Rosa's face. And Thunder Rosa says, do you think I'm an idiot? And she puts her hand under the cake and puts it in Nyla's face. And then Nyla's blinded by the fucking cake. So she swings at Thunder Rosa, but hits Vicky instead. Thank God she didn't really hit her. And you could tell she didn't really hit her. Elsewise, it probably killed Vicky. And then Thunder Rosa and Nyla have a girls' fight backstage with furniture, now with cake. So the only way that this show could get any worse would be to bring out the main event right now, which is, again, Samoa Joe. What? These guys have no luck. They're either in a place, Samoa Joe, Jay Lethal, FTR, they're either in a place where people that they work for don't respect them and they can't get on TV or the company is not big enough and high profile enough and nobody knows how great they are and they finally get on national TV and some way or another, 
those that are most deserving get the biggest plate of shit. Samoa Joe's first Ring of Honor TV championship defense on national television is against Japanese grandpa. Minoru Suzuki. A few hundred thousand people on the planet called this a dream match. Every other wrestling fan that's ever existed called this an embarrassing fucking joke. It's over. Hey, if I was a baseball fan, I'd like to see Babe Ruth play baseball, but not when he was 73 years old. I was a fan of Muhammad Ali. And I watched my Kentucky compatriot, hometown hero, all the way through his career until finally it wasn't pretty to see the Larry Holmes situation. Everybody gets old. I know Minoru Suzuki is a real shooter. I know he's an MMA legend. I know he's a big name in Japan. He's in his early 50s. He visually looks like a decrepit delivery boy. His shit looks phony, except for the the chops that he really hits guys with that are standing there letting him do it. And he sells nothing because he can't even snap his neck or turn his head. He's like literally like a fucking Mr. Potato Head with the little short arms and legs that don't bend. And it's and you do you think at some point that with the and especially no knee pads, little short shooter boots to expose those bird legs, he looks like he's going to break. I know he can really whip everybody, but it's a ridiculous visual and his work looks like shit. Tell me I'm wrong, Brian. I think the visual works. If you're someone who is exposed to him already and you enjoy him, even if he is older, it's, I think, different if you're someone who maybe just watched wrestling in America on TV and doesn't know New Japan talent who hasn't Over appeared. The la- if you've just watched TV wrestling for the last 30 years and don't know who this fucking guy is, I've liked his work in the past. There's a Tokyo Dome match with Sakuraba a few years back that was fantastic. But every time he's appeared on AEW, he's looked smaller than he ever looked in New Japan to me. And he's not working, at least in my eyes, he's not working the same way he did a few years ago. And, you know, I saw the Samoa Joe Kenta Kabashi match where they just chopped each other. And for that room, it really worked and it was amazing. This was kind of another take at that, it felt like, for at least half the match. But at least Kabashi was, what, in his 30s at that point? Maybe 40? Yeah. Physically, he was getting ready to wrap it up. But, yeah. Maybe 40. (sighs) They started with the chops and the forearms, where it wasn't like Punk and Penthouse, where this they're just standing there hitting each other on purpose and allowing the other one to hit them in return. And it's stupid. And I love Samoa Joe, and I love his... And I've been dying for somebody to give him a job and put him on television for the past five fucking years or whatever. I had to fast forward through the end of the chops. I, I was, I'm just going to fast forward until somebody leaves their feet. And it, I did. It was Joe gave Suzuki a nice shoulder tackle. He took a bump, and immediately they went to the break. <laughs> okay, all right, I'll fast forward through the break. 
Come back from the break. Joe is trying for a cross face, but Suzuki can't bend his neck or his back, so he couldn't get it. And then they did some slow, sloppy stuff, and then they started chopping again. Suzuki said, one more time, and they start chopping. I'm like, motherfucker. Joe is so talented, and he can, he's got, he can do the MMA style. He can move around like a big fucking Greyhound bus in the air. He's, he can promo. He has a badass aura. The last thing you want is for some elderly, decrepit Japanese grandfather to be taking everything that Joe can dish out and smiling. That's counterproductive to anybody except the crowd they already have, which they're never going to add to with horse shit like this on television. So then Suzuki couldn't get the gotch pile driver because he couldn't reach around Samoa Joe because his arms are a foot and a half long. I'm surprised he didn't wipe his own ass. And then Joe hit the muscle buster, one, two, three. And I wrote, thank gotch, that's over. But it wasn't over. At least the Suzuki part was. But now I'm about to wish for more Suzuki. Jay Lethal and Sanjay Dutt, a longtime close personal bond that began on TV seven days ago between these two guys. They're really, they're friends in real life, but for this television universe, they joined up seven days ago. They have said that they had had a gift ready for Samoa Joe, and they're there at ringside with a nice little gift-wrapped box, and I'm thinking, well, that nobody can come out of that box. It's it's not even bigger than a bread box. But they pulled a variation on the old dick-in-the-box routine with the finger in the box. They pull the top off the box, and it's Jay Lethal's finger. And then the lights go out, and the whole place is dark, and the announcer will go, well, something's happening, and the lights stay out forever because apparently the new member of the roster took a while to get in his, his spot. So I, I saw how he's moves slicker and quicker than lightning elsewise, so I'm surprised they got him in there without calling AAA. But when the lights come back on, there's a giant in the ring. Brian, did this guy facially look like if if the if the pinhead from Freaks was a giant from India? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> and had bigger sideburns. So there's the the giant in the ring and Joe turns around and then here comes the Sanjay and Lethal and the heels attack and Tony Schiavone of all people they give him the duty to explain who this guy is I know this guy and apparently the story is he Tony knows him because he's been to the workout sessions at the AEW training facility that previously we've been been told was run by QT Marshall and Cody Rhodes the Nightmare Factory, but now it's just the AEW training facility and Sanjay Dutt's doing the working out. And this guy's name is Satnam Singe. And he's a... I don't think that's how you pronounce his name. Well, I don't care. because I think I, it's I don't think, I don't think he's going to be... He needs to be Singe. Somebody needs to light a fire under his ass. Uh, but he's apparently a, a flunk out... We've got Giant Gonzalez all over again. A flunk out 
in the NBA that never could make the team because he's seven feet whatever and look at him. So he couldn't play basketball, and it's the same thing. Maybe a nice guy just like Jorge was. But he's I, I don't know if he's going to be as good as Giant Gonzalez was in the ring. So anyway, Satnam Singh and his two cohorts get some of the most horrible alleged heat. It made Jericho's business look good. And the people, as soon as they saw this guy and as soon as they realized that he was immobile and couldn't do anything, they started scoff-booing. You know, it's like when somebody laughs at something that's funny, you can tell they're laughing, they're really entertained, but when they're laughing at something that's stupid or silly or when they're scoff-laughing. Well, this was scoff-booing. They weren't booing that they're favorite Samoa Joe was getting beaten up by bad guys. They were booing like, this sucks. This is ridiculous. What, we paid for this? They what were the booing, fuck are you doing? They were booing like when the Dark Order attacked the Young Bucks at the end of that episode. And yes. That's the kind of boo it was. Scoff booing. And Satnam Singe's big move to cripple Samoa Joe was a double head claw. It was like, I'm squeezing your head. They just did it with fucking what's almost, he's a head, all these giants are head squeezers. And Joe couldn't figure out how to sell any of this. And then the other guys are trying to kick him and punch him to do some kind of damage. But because the giant has him held there and he can't take a bump, he can't sell their shit either. So... Now Jay Lethal and Sanjay Dutt are the captors or maintenance men or, you know, keepers of this flunked out basketball player that Tony Khan thinks is going to make them superstars in India. And that apparently is the story behind this. He said this. He Tony Khan has said, we're going to get the, you know, the, this guy is going to be a huge in India and Jay Lethal and Sanjay Dutt, who they already know over in India. Well, they're just going to be our featured people in India. Fuck me. So the, the poor Americans that are giving you your ratings and most of your ticket money are going to have to sit there and watch this fucking clown, this goddamn human dirigible, because you want to potentially get people in India. And it, it, they love the great Kali in India. I will admit that because apparently the Indian people, if any of their people do anything good, no matter how, I don't mean anything good. Well, I mean, do anything noteworthy, no matter how rotten they are at it, they become God. You've seen the articles where the great Kali, those people, Bless them, not only they're the last country in the world that still thinks the business is real, but they think that great Kali was a great pro wrestler because they don't know what the fuck's going on over there with anything else anyway, right? So so we get, we get what we wanted. We want Jay Lethal, an amazing talent, to be pushed. He's going to be pushed with the world's worst wrestler in his group and poor Sanjay having to try to take up the slack. What was your impression of Satnam Singe? You know what I feel about the lights going out and the surprise in the ring? It happens too often. 
Is the same guy that helped Sanjay and Jay Lethal the same guy that helps the House of Black? Are there different people that have control of the light switch? We need some... It's about time wrestling clarity. answers these questions. We yeah. need clarity. And, and also, did that guy infiltrate WWE Raw on Monday night in order to screw up the finish of the AJ Styles and fucking hoo-ha match, D- Damian Priest? I'll give Tony credit just when I thought, man, there's no way to make me appreciate almost. They find another <laughs> giant that made me realize, wow, almost is like the Ric Flair of giants. He can work, he can do promos. <laughs> this guy's great. And everyone wants a giant. As soon as they see someone who's seven feet tall, they go for him. There are very few that have actually worked. And although the big show was never used right, he worked. He worked in WCW. And he learned how to work. Yeah. I don't know who this guy is. OVW did a lot for him too, come to think of it. The other big issue is this is, you know what part of the booing is? It's not even about who's this guy or what is this. It's about we don't want to see Samoa Joe used like this. He just got here. Yeah. We don't want Samoa Joe tied to this. We'll deal with Jay Lethal and Sanjay Dutt tied to this. But we just got Samoa Joe. We don't want him having to deal with this. It's like, it's, 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 it's like this girl decides to finally give you the go ahead and give you the whole blowjob, right? And then you find out that she's got dentures and the front teeth are sharp. You get something you want, and then it's taken, the enjoyment is taken away from you. Yeah, I guess that's a way to look at it. Yeah. Um, I had another point, but now I have no idea what I was going to say. Because there was this one girl job in Ohio. She had dentures, but she would take them out first. And I recommend that. All right. Well, you aren't the dentist. Let me remind everyone out there. So maybe they shouldn't listen to your advice on oral hygiene or oral health. Anything oral for that. Matter. Anything or don't listen to Jim Court. Anything he says, just ignore when it comes to any of these things. But back to Samoa Joe. We just saw him, and now he's going to be tied to this. And what I was going to say before is I don't think you said enough about how bad the claw – I don't do you call it a claw? The head squeeze. No, no, the head squeeze. It, was, it looked so ridiculous. This was – you know what this reminded me of just because the guy didn't seem like he knew what he was doing? It was more the Yeti's debut where he just hugged Hogan. Yes. He just grabbed Samoa Joe's head and just held on to it, and it looked horrible. It looked so stupid. And you came out of this really feeling bad about the way they're using Samoa Joe, and then you felt mad about the way they were using Samoa Joe. And the giant, if he had any kind of facial expression or anything, but you could just tell, you could see it on him. I don't know what I'm, what am I doing here? What is happening around me? I want the belt! Not even that! Just, just complete confusion and total... Lost ball in high weeds. So, and that... Oh, and by the, the overrun! Tony Khan goes on Twitter, goes on the internet, makes the big announcement. Folks, they've told us we're going to have as much time for this dream match title match as we need. If we have to go over, if we have to overrun, and everybody's tweeting, set your DVRs. We don't want to miss this. Something big's going to happen. You know how long the overrun was? Was it two minutes? Two minutes. (laughs) I recorded... The program that came after AEW to make sure I got the overrun, but AEW was listed in the DVR as from 8 p.m. to 10.02 p.m. And the giant and poor Sanjay and Lethal were standing there when my DVR froze. It didn't even go to the next program yet. So the overrun was like 90 seconds. And that's 
I had so many people say, make sure you set your DVR. Yeah. Didn't need to. I wish I hadn't set the DVR for the program I saw. Except for MJF, I could have caught that on. I could. They could have played the whole MJF segment on Twitter, and really, we could have saved this week. But nevertheless, do you think the attitude with this giant is? I'm being serious here. I don't mind saying I agree with it, but do you think the attitude is? Well, we rushed Jade to TV, and she's a star, and now people actually. I think she actually does move the ratings in a good way. She may not be very good in a ring yet, but she's at least got some promo skills. Do you think that's the attitude? Hey, no. we can make him a star, just rush him on TV? No, I think I think they they know and are pre- and I bet they probably can because we've said, I just said they'll accept apparently anything in India because Kali was over. So they're gonna stink up whatever portion of the television program that airs in North America that this guy is on, United States, Canada. English-speaking countries around the world specifically to try to get over in India with this clown. And good luck with that. That's all I've got to say. Because here's the thing. If you get over in India, then how are you going to take advantage of it? you got to go to India. You think William Regal's going to go back to India? That's where he almost died. He got, they got so, He got so sick, he never actually recovered. That nearly killed him and kept him out for however long. This is the WWE. This was a company that was well-versed and experienced in traveling to every country in the world. And they went over to India and everybody got sick as a fucking dog and Regal almost died. But Tony Khan is very rich. And from what I understand, he's been talking with the universal heartthrob Austin Idol about bringing him over, having him set up water filtration systems all over <laughs> So that they'll be okay on their tour. He's a very, very smart guy. Oh, Idol, he he made a fortune on those water filters. All <laughs> right, are, are we uh, are we done? What are we doing next? I haven't I haven't been blown off the face of the earth. Everything in the house is mostly repaired, and we are somewhat caught up on the wrestling. So after this Easter weekend, opening weekend, opening day, first pitch last pitch, whatever the case, we're going to come back with a drive-through. That's your program. And, uh, and we'll have time. We'll have a few days over the holiday weekend to gather our thoughts. And I expect on Saturday and Sunday to sign and pack up ready for the feather bottoms, at least 250 action figures for next week. That's my goal. And I'm sure you'll hit that goal. It's a great goal. And I think here, as we begin to wrap things up, we should wish all the listeners a Happy Passover, Happy Easter, and anything else we're not aware of or thinking of right now. <laughs> well, and but now you've already established yourself as a person who doesn't eat the hen-laid eggs and and do all the Easter stuff. So you just you just do what you do. I'm going to be over here having some hard-boiled eggs this weekend and some chocolate bunnies. Did you see that was just a story uh, to end on a down note? Okay. Was it Cadbury eggs where they just found out like it's child labor that puts them together <laughs> or gets I, the ingredients? I have not heard this, but that would be, that would just tickle the cockles of my heart if that was the case. Yeah. Have these beautiful Cadbury eggs made by <laughs> enslaved children. 
I read it in a page. It was either the Daily News or the Post. I can't remember where, but there was an article about, I think, how the Cadbury eggs. I was like, oh, you know, you have all these articles. You see them in the stores. It's getting ready for the season. I'm sure as a business, they're waiting all year for this. And all of a sudden, there's this article <laughs> about child labor. And I'm just like, how? I mean, it's Easter. It's eggs. What are, what are the yeah. kids doing? Jesus, bunnies and eggs. Hey, did you hear about the woman that tried to protest something? By going to an NBA game and gluing herself to the basketball court? I did not. That was a deal. So, this woman was protesting something going on in her town and decided the way to call attention to it was to go to the basketball game and glue her hand to the court. They had a picture of her down there on her hands and knees. She tried to glue her hand, but apparently she didn't use the instantaneous stuff and they were able to to pull her right off and take her away. She got arrested, but I'm not sure the charges are going to stick. Uh-huh. Very, very funny. Was it all for that punchline? Was it all for that punchline? You made no, up this a whole true story? story. Okay. No, that's a true story. This woman tried to glue herself <laughs> to the, she was listening to Terry Funk, I think. Okay. <laughs> and it, his idea, remember that? His idea yeah. was it could be Super the biggest Bowl. publicity stunt of all time. Go to the He was going to go to the Super Bowl and chain himself to the goalpost. No, he told Pillman to do it. Oh, that's right. He told Pillman. Hey, Pillman real quick. would have done it. Real quick before we wrap things up, any thoughts on the death of Gilbert Gottfried? Well, now, yeah. See, I thought we had us up with the, the charges sticking and all that other stuff, and then you bring death into it. Gotta be honest, was never a Gilbert Gottfried fan particular, didn't get it, but I see that all the other comics loved him so much, it must have been one of those deals where to know him is to love him, so I feel bad about that. But I would I would not put him on my top 75 list of favorite comedians. All right, well, we want to apologize. Were you a fan? I was a fan. What's what's it what's your favorite thing he ever did? You know what? I don't know if anyone else will say this, and I like him as a comedian. He had a great podcast. He was hysterical on Stern when Howard Stern was Howard Stern when I was growing up. But my favorite thing, my two favorite things, one, Beverly Hills Cop 2. But the first one, when I was in summer camp, there was a rain, it was a rainy day. So it was an outdoor camp. When it rained, they took us from the Henry Kaufman campgrounds to a movie theater or a bowling alley or something, roller skating rink. We went to the movies to see Problem Child. You ever see Problem Child? Many years ago. Well, Gilbert Gottfried plays the guy. I think he's running the orphanage with the nuns. Or no, he, I don't know what he's doing. I forget the exact job. <laughs> but in that movie, he plays the guy. And at one point, he's defending Junior. And the kid starts laughing. And he goes, what are you laughing at? And he goes, you, you stupid dick. And I remember all the counselors laughing. It was like one of those moments as a kid, like, oh, okay, cool. We can all use dick now because they <laughs> laughed. But a problem child, just because I saw it as a kid in a movie theater, but very funny guy, I thought. Very, very funny. And also inappropriate at times, but sometimes that lent itself to the hilarity of it all. He did do a good version of the aristocrats. He did. And by gum, folks, if you want more aristocratic humor... From the aristocrats of podcasts, then you got to join us next week on the drive through That's Brian Last Show, so don't blame me. Or next week here on the Jim Cornette Experience, where hopefully we'll have some time to gather some new things to talk about without uh, fear of being killed by Mother Nature.
Folks, again, for Brian and all of the other minions at the at the office here, we wish you a very pleasant, good Easter weekend. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights, I get to stay up late. Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, Mom, I need to watch the show. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Says I'm in the key demo. 